What's up, architects of the future? If we're live right now, I'm not really sure these days. I don't really have my studio. And as you become accustomed to, you know, the usual uh, uh, ramp up to the setup for these kind of things, uh, you know, you're used to this by now. First of all, it's been a while. I've missed you all. Okay, I've spent the last couple of weeks making some necessary adjustments in my business, in my personal life. I'm gonna share a couple of these now because, you know, I'm actually, you know, really curious about what kind of adjustments you guys are making right now. So, you know, in the last couple of weeks, I've really taken the opportunity to reflect on, you know, what kind of changes are about to happen on a global scale and what that really means for me on a personal level. And to what degree also, we can take this situation as a mirror to the kind of things that we need to change as a society. And, you know, as society is made up of individuals, what we can do to make that change so that we can contribute to the necessary change we have to make. So what a couple of things that I've been doing and I've been more very conscientious about is, you know, spending a bit more time connecting with my family. You know, this, this uh, coronavirus has really given me the opportunity to slow things down and to be able to connect with my children, which I've, you know, absolutely loved. Kalimera, Alexandra, very nice to see you. Alexandra Riris, we both know you. Uh, say, say quick hello, Billy. Oh. That, uh, let me say that for those of you watching on the New Europe uh, page, uh, Colin Whitfield hosts a podcast called Architects of the Future, and he's been gracious enough to host me today and have me as his guest. So we're going to be talking a lot about uh, what I do in New Europe, what I do in our world, what we do um, in the various associations that I'm involved with, and hopefully you can get a sense um, of uh, what my day-to-day -day life is like, but also what kind of lessons I've learned in the past, uh, you know, 20 years or so that I've been involved in this. All right, Billy, you're you're a professional. Obviously, you've been doing this before, guys. For any of you that don't know, Billy is the uh, CEO of New Europe, as uh, he just mentioned. And, you know, he's basically been dedicating his life to the journalistic profession. So obviously he's had a couple of these before. Now, let me just, for my uh, audience, uh, as Billy mentioned, he introduced himself to his audience. But, you know, Billy's a friend of mine from high school. And I've been kind of like watching his career from the very, very early times. He's actually been, you know, slung into the, the big leagues, interviewing some, you know, pretty important people who are in charge of our, of our European Union and of various different foreign policies. And so, you know, I've been watching Billy's career with, uh, uh, with a lot of uh, enthusiasm and interest. And I've seen kind of like what he's achieved in the last, you know, uh, years since high school that we went together. And, uh, you know, a, a couple of things just to note about Billy, but apart from being the CEO and chief editor of uh, New Europe, apart from being the uh, chief editor and CEO of, uh, of uh, New Europe, which is one of the leading publications around European affairs, he's also the vice president of the Association of Journalists in Belgium. Is that the correct... Uh, so I've, 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 that was, uh, I was first elected vice president and then I became secretary general. A minor difference, we're a small uh, group of, of people who are sitting on this board and we're all uh, essentially working very hard to try and make things happen through the association. So the titles don't really matter there. Well, still, you know, uh, I, you know, myself uh, being in the business world have just started getting into various associations. I've been pretty much of a lone wolf, so to say, up until now. And, you know, this is a new world to me, and I, and I find myself kind of wishing, why the hell wasn't I part of those things? And I see a couple of my friends like you, and I got another friend of mine who's, who's got this beautiful business uh, running a, a business process outsourcing company in Romania. And he employs, I think, cl close to 2,000 people. 
and uh, I've seen how important these associations are, but also how meaningful it is actually to rise to the ranks of these because you do get to exert some influence. You do get to share things with other people along a similar path. And I just wish I had, you know, uh, taken place or, or been a part of those a bit earlier. So, you know, Billy is the, is the vice president of, uh, of um, uh, the Journalist Association in Belgium. And he also advises uh, a number of, uh, uh, um, well, political uh, uh, politicians around campaigning and media strategy. So Billy's only 37 years old. As I told you all, you know, uh, I met Billy a long time ago. It must have been, what, around over 20 years ago now, Billy, right? I mean, it must be more than that. <laughs> well, okay, look, what I'll tell you about Billy, guys, right, we'll get into it now. But what I'll tell you about Billy is, me. Billy was a grade above me. And um, we knew each other through various different sports, okay? We went to a school called Campion. Big shout out, whoever's from Campion watching right now. I think a couple of people should be following the show to check out what me and Billy are doing. So can I say, can I see you in the comment section? Say a big hello, and I'd love to hear from you. Alexander, what's up from Campion? And uh, Campion was an amazing school and environment, and we had all sorts of activities. It was multinational, international, and, uh, and they really instilled a sense of community and, uh, and leadership without us really knowing what was going on at the time. Right, Billy? That's true. That's true. There's lots we can spend uh, talking about Campion and uh, how what what a great school it was and what kind of values it, it kind of imbued in us and, and helped us become what we are today. I think even for people who aren't in the corporate world, I have a lot of friends who are you know working for NGOs trying to just help and make the world a better place. And they all received the same kind of education and training. And ultimately, I think uh, having spent a lot of time thinking about this, the education you give your, your children is critical. Uh, we were lucky enough to go to a school where we had a very multi-ethnic, multi multicultural, multinational setting. We understood immediately you know, that we had to respect other people's values, even though we came with our own. Um, and above that, we were in... Greece, so the, the language uh, speak, spoken there is Greek, of course, but we got to essentially become true bilinguals, at least. Some people, of course, also learn French and things like that, uh, but we became true bilinguals, and that is definitely the most important thing, I think, uh, among with the values and having teachers that care about you and foster your personal development. Um, all of these things came, things came together to make us, I think, all very valuable people for society. No, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And, uh, you know, I wasn't your typical good student. I don't know about you, Billy. How you <laughs> Certainly <remember>. not. <laughs> but, but, you know, that's the beauty about a, a place like Campion. And uh, it's worth probably noting a little bit now. And I do hope some Campionites will see this. And if you are seeing this, whether you're live now or later, drop a hello in the comment section. It's been ages. I'd love to hear from you. And who knows? Maybe you can come on the podcast. But, uh, you know, uh, a couple of things noting is, you know, me and Billy, not necessarily the best in our grades, but Campion had this whole rounded approach of actually raising whole rounded individuals. They had activities such as theater, which a lot of people took part in. It had basically a lot of sports and me and Billy partook in a lot of sports together, particularly, you know, junior varsity uh, football, right? Or soccer, you know, depending on where you're, where you're looking at this from. Uh, and and varsity the same and I think Billy you were also in a couple of the other teams together right in volleyball and basketball did you did you play in a couple of those as well sure I, I did and you know I was never one of the people that was amazing at the sport uh, I, I guess I was maybe a little bit above average uh, but the whole inclusive environment meant that I got to be there I got to play uh, I wasn't great and we built this kind of uh, team spirit and we got to go on these beautiful trips and play other 
children from around the world. Um, it got quite competitive. I remember. Uh, <laughs> I remember various injuries that I had to walk off, uh, and the coach would say, uh, "Pain is in the mind. Pain is in the mind." And I had just gotten, you know, kicked in a very, very uh, delicate area. Uh, so it was uh, certainly fun, um, and I, I think I learned something from that. And I, I, you know, I do tend to carry it around, and the, the sense of team building and working as a team and not as an individual by yourself. Well, I think also uh, uh, what I remember from you from those days, and this was kind of like this little intro I wanted to give to my audience about you, because I think it kind of defined you, and I still see you walking around with that uh, attitude you develop uh, through those years. But you know, you were uh, you were pretty chilled individual. Like you would always connect. Me and you would always have conversations, even though you were in different grades and kind of like different cliques of interest, whatever, throughout school. But, you know, you were always really competitive, I remember, on the on the sports field. And you never backed down from a debate or a little argument. That's what I remember from you. So, like, I always had this image that you were this cocky older guy, uh, but at the same time really friendly and, and really, really open. And I remember also coming to your house party towards the end of our of our uh, of your school year, I believe. I think it was the end of your school year. And we bonded and connected a little bit more there. So, I mean, um, um, you know... For, for my viewers right now, what um, what I admire about Billy and his profession and what he's, and why I wanted to invite him on the show. And because we had this little technical issue before, if you're joining in right now, I just want to give a, a little bit of an intro again about the show. Because right now, I think there's never been a more crucial time for a show around basically um, uh, showcasing individuals that are taking big action in the world. Individuals that for me, like Billy, are people who don't only work for profit, but work actually to espouse and promote the beliefs and values that they hold dear to themselves. And that's a whole other level because, you know, up until recently, and you can very much, let's say, uh, see the parallels of what's happening in our world today, you know, there has been a predominant culture of, you know, make profit for survival, which leads to consumerism, which leads to, you know, the event that we have today, which is, you know, jungles being cleared in faraway places and eventually coming into contact with these pathogens. And now we realize how interconnected the world is and how, you know, uh, uh, how basically small decisions every day that we contribute to can have a lasting effect, a butterfly effect, so to speak, if you know the term. So, you know, this show basically is called Architects of the Future because it's literally about people who are designing the kind of life that they want to. They don't compromise on their integrity, right? Of course, it's not always perfect. And me and Billy will tell you, you know, we've had our moments probably also in our lessons around that. But, you know, we try and, and the people that I invite on the show try as much as possible to uh, align their efforts commercially in the world with their values. And through that, they manage to create impact. And, you know, at this show, I'm not giving you the finished product. I'm not inviting, you know, uh, people that are far down the line that you see on the news every single day. I'm talking about people that are making moves today because I'd love to inspire people like you who are watching right now. And if you are... You know, give me a thumbs up. I'd love to see you there in the comment section. And, you know, this is a great time to ask some questions uh, for Billy because what we're going to be discussing about and what I admire and love about Billy, a lot about Billy, is that he's managed to carve out a little niche in a very, very competitive world, okay? So he, think about this. He's the editor-in-chief of a publication that covers EU affairs. He's based in Brussels, and his job, literally, guys, is to keep the politicians that we don't know but that 
affect our, our daily lives, right? EU policies, if you're part of Europe, okay, if you're not part of Europe, this doesn't necessarily apply. But his job is to keep these guys in check, to keep them straight. And at the same time, you know, I do admire that you promote openly your values towards a common uh, united Europe. I too, because of my background, because of the school that we went to, it's a bit hard for me to say that I could agree with an isolation stance or a nationalistic stance where we don't collaborate, where we remove barriers of cooperation, trade, and all those kind of things. Because, you know, by de facto, if you know my background, I come from a multiple of, of different places, right? I'm Filipino, Spanish, English, Greek. So, you know, which side would I take? So, you know, I agree with those values, not only because I was born with them, but, but I do believe that's the evolution of where we're going. And what I love about Billy, and we're going to be talking about this openly, and through his, his publication, through uh, the work that he does, right, day in, day out, and also some of the non-profit initiatives that he does, he's managed basically to create an impact, a meaningful impact, right? You might not have read about it in the New York Times, but it's a meaningful impact that I would love to celebrate today, and that's why I invited Billy onto the show. So, Billy, welcome to the show, officially. <laughs> Thank you, Colin. And, uh, and Billy, uh, this is the time in the show where I'd love to ask my guests to tell us a little bit about your journey coming up into this particular point, right? So I already mentioned as a context that, you know, you were thrusted into this world really, really early on and that, you know, you've had to carve out a place in a very, very competitive environment. And more than that, you know, you've actually been able to create certain initiatives where that are meaningful, that create an impact and that actually help and support people. So tell us a little bit about your journey up until this point, because, you know, if I know, God knows, Lord knows, it probably hasn't been an easy ride. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, I, I, there's already a lot I can kind of respond to what some of the things you've already said, talking about United Europe, um, talking about, you know, being essentially a, a, a player in a very big pond with a lot of very, very powerful people. Um, and what it means really to, to be running a, a newspaper at this level. But you're right, let's maybe go, go back to the beginning a little bit uh, because, you know, as much as I'd like to say that I had a very ordinary childhood, um, I, don't, I don't think I did. And it's hard to recognize my beginnings if I don't take a little bit of time maybe to talk about my family. Because the 10 years before I was born, uh, my father, uh, Basil, he worked for the U.S. State Department. We don't really ever talk about what he did there. Um, I know he did. Uh, the, so he went on um, after that job, which he did for about 10 years. I think he went on to become a correspondent for some of the world's largest media, um, you know, including CNN and things like that. Um, he also wrote the back page uh, of Kathimerini, which uh, at, the, at the time and still today is Greece's daily newspaper of record. Um, and he was the one to kind of sway governments in and out and, and, and run these very, very uh, deep political games, which kind of shifted balance of power in, in uh, Greece. So eventually he got, I think he just got tired of working for other people. And he and my mother uh, decided it was time to launch their own business and went into uh, publishing. So initially, because of his background and what who the people he had worked with, they launched some um, publications aiming and targeting the diplomatic community in Greece, as well as the intelligence community, which was working around Greece and, and the region. Uh, eventually, they wanted to grow beyond Greece, so they uh, launched New Europe. Uh, and that, well, in fact, in, in the first year of its existence, it was called Balkan News, and then it changed name to New Europe. And that's essentially the, the newspaper that I've been running for the past decade. 
I'm happy to discuss some of this if questions come up later. Um, I think, you know, I, I should acknowledge, of course, that my father is still involved. Uh, in 2008, he was uh, proposed to be uh, the ambassador of an organization called the RCC. So I had to take over fully and officially at that point. And so since then, I've been doing uh, more work running the newspaper and the business, um, as well as running the editorial. And he's taken uh, a step back. Eventually, after that stint was done, he, he he did come back, and we are working very well together. Um, you know, he does a lot of the, the big thinking uh, around what goes on. Uh, he also has a lot of the big connections that I'm still fostering throughout my my day to day career. So, anyway, coming back to it, my childhood was a little bit peculiar. I grew up in Athens. Uh, you know, as you said, we went to the same private school, and at home, every time I would go home. Uh, you know, politicians would be inside the house. Uh, whenever we were on summer holiday, I would spend it at the office because my parents were there 24-7. So I would get to run around the newsroom all day and, um, you know, hassle and, and poor, poor souls, uh, really bother all the journalists and the people working there. But that kind of transitioned and I grew beyond being just a child. And eventually I started to become interested um, in what was going on in there. So. Uh, you know, I began begun to experience the media world uh, from the inside. I learned about the, the hard skills you need, uh, how to do layout. Back then, we did layout by printing on transparency paper and then fixing that on a film, which went through a special process. It, you know, it's not really what we have today with InDesign. It was a completely different world. Um, I also learned about the business side of publications, which is an entirely different thing on its own. And of course, journalism. Uh, I remember writing my first article. It was about what I think today we reference as a two-speed Europe. And I was still you know, at school then. Um, and the way I remember it was described back then, it was described as a Europe where you had two concentric circles, uh, one within another, and one was at the core, and one was more to the outside. And you know, it was the, the concept, the, the, the phrasing of a two-speed Europe had, hadn't been used yet, so they were drawing it with these uh, diagrams um, and trying to explain it in that way. And, of course, I didn't really have an idea of what was going on, and um, this is, I think, the first moment where, where I learned that to be a journalist, you have to constantly learn a lot of new information, and you have to learn a lot of new information and assimilate it in a way that you can explain it to others. And by the way, you have to do that in a way that makes you appear as an authority to the people who are reading it. So, you know, I, I don't know about the life of academics. It's very hard. You specialize on one thing. We have to specialize on 100 different things uh, a month because that's just the way the news cycle goes. So that's, I think, a, a first kind of uh, introduction of how I began um, these steps. Uh, you know, afterwards, I went on to go to university in Brussels, of course, because we were expanding and we were moving our offices from Athens to Brussels, or rather we were, we were opening new offices in, in Brussels because we still have offices in Athens. And it was just the uh, Stockholm syndrome, syndrome, I guess. I was just nudged in this direction to come and study here, even though you know the, the natural course of progression for me would have been to go, go to the UK. And uh, I did. And so I had a lot of partying in my uh, bachelor's degree years. Um, but I also had a lot of actually going around with a press card, going into the EU institutions and actually reporting. Uh, I wasn't working full time, of course, but I was writing articles every week. So I don't know if I've bored people yet. And, uh, you know, I, I think.
hey Billy, I think the internet got uh, got cut. I think uh, okay. we should be we should be streaming live now in a second. Just a sec, connecting back to live yeah. producer. Sure. Hey, so I kept talking. I wasn't sure, but I'll, I'll go over some of it again. Um, I, I was I was starting to say I was recounting my my first interview experience. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You told me about this, and I really wanted to share this with people, actually. <laughs> so this was this this is a, a, a funny thing, you know. I was uh, under twenty. I had blonde streaks in my hair. Um, you know, thing the kind of thing you look back on and say that was definitely a mistake. Uh, and I was I was called and told, you know, you have to go interview the foreign minister of Uzbekistan. Uh, okay, some of you might say Uzbekistan. It's uh, it's not uh, you know the U.S., uh, but still it's a it's an important country in the region and. Uh, I had to go run this interview with the visiting leader of the moment, who was a foreign minister, a man um, named, I think, Sadiq Safayev. And so I did. Uh, I was very nervous. Uh, my father told me, look, you have nothing to worry about. If this man says something wrong, he could be in a lot of trouble back in this country. And we're just we're not just talking about losing his job. Uh, I won't be more graphic than that. But, you know, the explanation was that he, he should be uh, more afraid of what he says to me than of how I will look in an interview. And ultimately, this is what I've learned from this job. You know, It's not about how you look as a journalist or as an interviewer um, or as a moderator on a panel. Uh, it's about how you make other people look. And the more you make the interviews about other people, the better the content is going to be at the end of it. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. You know, uh, I, uh, I'm usually in the position like you of interviewing people for this, uh, for this podcast. And whenever the the shoes turn around, and that's kind of true in general. If you if you you know if you take that approach to life, actually, most people hesitate to make the kind of impactful moves, the the you know the the high impact moves, the things that would challenge you and take you out of your comfort zone, because they're thinking about what does this affect, how does this affect me, what does this say about me, and when you turn that around and you make it about other people, all of a sudden you 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 know you find this hidden power and energy and strength you didn't know you had before, because it's far easier for you to actually go out and defend others than it is to stand up to yourself sometimes, you know? So, you know, I definitely can relate to that. And I can definitely relate to the feeling of, you know, those first bold steps that you need to take when you're thrusted into uh, a context where in your mind, right, and this is going back then when you're 19 years old, you mentioned? Sure. Right, when you're 19 years old. But this applies to me even today, right? I was, I was, uh, uh, I was actually uh, asked to consult for the World Bank to speak to a bunch of uh, private communities here in the private sector and these were captains of industry in in Romania so you know CEOs of very very large multinationals in the Romanian counterparts and you know I, at first I was like what the hell am I going to speak to these people about you know I'm definitely not on their level in terms of you know uh, uh, CV and, and achievements but once I realized that actually you know if you make it about someone else and you make it about others then the whole kind of uh, thing shifts basically in you and you find yourself accessing let's say parts of yourself that you actually later look at yourself in amazement like how did i actually do that you know how did i actually achieve that right yeah and uh, i think that what i what i tried to do as i i started to grow in this job is trying to find ways that i can create value not just for for myself but the people around me for the business uh but do something that actually matters beyond my day-to-day -day. so you know, of course, when you're at the top of a company, you get to be a bit more uh, 
free in, in terms of the kind of the projects you choose. And, uh, you know, we try and foster that and also internally, if people have good ideas for projects, I, I always ask them to come to me and we try and make them happen. And I think uh, part of being uh, a flexible organization means that you can bring things to fruition quickly. Um, now, going back to New Europe, you know, we're an SME in the media world. We're not the biggest, uh, we're not the best, uh, but we matter and we matter a lot. And our target audience is, in fact, the leadership that are coming together and making the changes that are going to translate to our day-to-day -day lives. So it's, it's very peculiar because, you know, you, you come across, um, I come across other entrepreneurs and they are, you know, big restaurant owners. Their restaurants might do a turnover of, you know, six, eight million euros a year if they've got a couple of them and they have chains. And I think to myself, my God, you know, uh, I have less turnover than a restaurant. Mm -hmm. And then I think to myself, okay, but imagine what, you could do with very little money and how much impact you can have. Uh, and this is ultimately what people come to resent a little bit in the media. You have these, uh, these young kids who are becoming journalists and they work really hard and people sometimes are jealous that, you know, they could be doing the same thing. Now you, I don't know if you know a lot of journalists, but journalists are very peculiar species of people. Um, they have, um, big egos and rightfully so because they work very hard and their accomplishments uh, deserve to be uh, admired um you know i i was listening to the ceo of a big company the other day who was saying look we have doctors on the front lines now with the coronavirus uh we also have the journalists and the truth is that if without the journalists we wouldn't know what is going on we wouldn't know the truth we wouldn't know how many people are infected that can lead to, to mass panics um or it could lead to people disregarding the danger altogether and going outside the house um there's bad apples also there's bad apples also and you know it's it we shouldn't mention that but but that's the case in, in every single industry i think look uh, let's let's touch on a couple of points you mentioned because they're very interesting first off uh you know the point you made earlier about how even with smaller turnover, you can have a larger impact. And I think that's not, that doesn't just speak to the medium that you're in, although of course it really, really helps, but I think it speaks to the mission that you kind of represent sometimes, doesn't it? Because, you know, in your particular case, I think you probably have, and from what I see, you have a very loyal, strong uh, readership. You also ask yourself and focus on a specific niche where you influence the influencers, so to speak. And, and uh, in that regard, uh, at least from what I see and how I know you as a person, uh, you know, you haven't strayed along the sensationalist path of selling more by, you know, uh, by kind of neglecting certain principles and journalistic values. And uh, I want to ask you, you know, first off, you know, for the world at large and, and, and for the people uh, listening, but, you know, how do you balance that? How do you balance running a business and at the same time, kind of staying true to your values. And, and what are your values that you've accumulated along the way that you feel represent you today? Because obviously they're probably very different from when you were starting out. So what are your values today and how do you hold true to them, especially in this kind of a medium where I suppose there's temptations to, to, to sell, gain more influence? And, um, and uh, how do you go about that, Billy? Yeah, I think it's a it's a very interesting question, and it's not a very easy one to answer. 
Um, because when you look at media organizations and you kind of judge whether they're being reliable, whether uh, they're selling out or, or whatever, uh, you judge them as a whole and not just as the, you know, what is the CEO or the editor in chief doing and how does that affect the business? Um, ultimately, we, we need to admit, okay, we need to admit that every media business has an editor in chief as a publisher, and there are editorial lines being drawn out. Mm -hmm. Now, big channels, you know, the Fox News of this world, um, and I say Fox News because it's very easy to, to distinguish their editorial line, but every media organization has a, a, a similar um, kind of approach, will have uh, a line that is very specific, and then they will go out and hire people which share those values with them. So Fox is not going to hire someone who is far left on the Democratic side. They're going to hire people whose ideas and ideology resonates with them. And I think you'll find that in the media. Now, what do I do? What are my values? And how do I kind of separate the, the business from the editorial? Um, the truth is it's very difficult. I spend a lot of time talking to clients in this space in, in Brussels. Clients are often stakeholders in industry which are involved with the process of policymaking. So it's very difficult sometimes to know whether something um, is a project for a client or a project that as a newspaper you should include as a stakeholder. Uh, what most media will do will say, right, if you're industry, you're a client. But I can't go down that road always because I don't think that's fair. Uh, so I try, I try and, and using my best judgment, uh, bring my personal ethics into it and decide whether something deserves to be known by the greater public uh, when we're going to write about it. Um, if I feel too close because there's a project that I'm running that I feel might compromise my editorial, then I'll hand it off to my managing editor just who who's just sits just next to me um, and can make those decisions without my input and without being affected by my personal bias. Mm -hmm. And you know, every human being comes with that personal bias, when whether they're reporting about something or whether they're choosing what store to go into or what shade of makeup to, to give themselves no warning, uh, they come with a personal bias which shapes their beliefs and their ideas and how they will approach any uh, given, let's say, article they write. Um, and so when I'm tempted by biases, which I've been long enough in the business to know when my bias can be at play, um, I'll just pawn them off to someone and, and say, look, you, you decide about how this goes. Or in the least, I'll get a lot of input about how we should approach this rather than how we are approaching this. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's not usually a position that is shared. To be editor and CEO is not something common. So um, the truth is, as the economy changes, so do my priorities. Because I have our, our managing editor, Nicholas Wooler, uh, I often spend more time focusing on the business side than I do on the editorial side. Um, and that can be healthy also, because if I spend more time on the business side, then I'm not spending time on the editorial side, which means that I can't have a conflict. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the truth is, it's just I try my best and I try and be a, a good person, a good human being uh, before that. Mm -hmm. um, but it's very tough. And, the, you know, the toughest thing is, one, making, drumming up the business, especially to keep uh, businesses like this going in a time of crisis. And the crisis, by the way, didn't start now. It started many, many years ago for the, the print uh, media industry. Um, these, these cycles of uh, topical crises uh, just make it worse, I think. Uh, and two, I'm, uh, I'm trying to pick our battles on an editorial front.
we spend a lot of time fighting on the editorial front and uh my god i you know i've i've experienced some of these in in my career that um have not gone too well you know uh we've uh, done everything from being uh people trying to embarrass us on national television um to uh how shall we say um to just having um death threats uh, I, I i don't know how more clear i could be but to, <laughs> to having death threats because of the articles we've been writing mm-hmm. um you know i I'm, and i'm not even talking here about the the simpler things like probably being watched by various agencies for 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 different things uh when you're dealing with uh, big time politicians um you and industry of course you often get to decide whether you're going to go after them and it's not personal you're just trying to do good journalism um or not and by the way it's it's not always bad stories sometimes it's good stories um we've made we've broken international news and been on you know you mentioned the new york times before uh we've had articles reference our uh stories in every single medium in the world um so i'm very happy with that and uh, uh the, yeah yeah go ahead go ahead go ahead no i mean um uh, a couple of things I wanted to touch upon about that. I mean, uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about a little bit about the kind of, let's say, values that uh, that you feel you've picked up, you represent, and that, uh, you know, you do your efforts, whether that's, you know, as a business or whether that's separately in your individual, uh, let's say, initiatives. But, you know, in terms of this whole notion of, you know, everyone, of course, is biased. And to the degree that uh, uh, at least I apply in my own life, right, I, I try to aim for truth. And I think that that is something that, you know, some journalism in general right now as an industry is under fire because they've lost their way around that. And I want to ask you, I mean, you know, there's the opinion, right? And, and then if you look at it from the Fox point of view, right, they believe actually that they're true, right, in their message, right? You can't take that and say that, you know, they're... They, they're obviously spreading uh, deliberate falsehoods, although they might do that sometimes to push policy in some cases or not. You know, I'm not, I'm not the best judge of that necessarily. Of course, from, from my standpoint, it sometimes looks that way. But, you know, where do you, where do you draw that fine line and, and where do you feel that, you know, uh, journalism has to regain its way back a little bit, right, in terms of uh, uh, reporting the truth? And, and especially in this world right now where, you know, we are more and more accepting uh, subjective versions of truth to a certain degree like we can accept that there's different opinions that there's different interests and we try and find modes of how we can accommodate all those different things right so uh, where do you stand on that in terms of uh, what truth means today in journalism and what it means for you so uh, i'll answer that just a, a short comment to say if anyone could hear some rumbling noises in the background that will be my uh, fat pug who is asleep and snoring uh, so apologies from that uh, so the the question of truth is uh, is 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 a big one. Um, I think if we look at media today, we are seeing the return to uh, their beginnings, which was to be more and more politicized, to take more and more active stances. When you have media, um, you know, endorsing specific candidates, uh, I'm not going to say if it's right or wrong, but I'm going to say it's different to what we were raised to believe is impartial journalism. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but you have to be aware what you are preaching and who you are preaching to. Um, A lot of the 
the um, leaning of a newspaper or a, a channel will be reflected on who they invite to be participating on the panels and the shows. By and large, the news, the news broadcasts will tend to be rather balanced. Uh, but then when you come to the opinion shows, you know, weekends or mornings, the people they bring on are going to be of more than anything else, a very specific um, political leaning. Uh, of course, the more ser serious organizations, and you'll know which ones I'm referring to, the, the, the massive news channels um, around the world um, tend to do it quite well and tend not to, to have any leanings. But the tendency nowadays is to return to, the, to this kind of reality where it's okay to advocate for specific people, even though if you're not advocating specific policies um, or specific directions. So, you know, this is a good thing to, a good time to kind of tie into what you said in your introduction. And you said that we advocate for a united Europe um, and that you're someone who, of course, can, can agree with that. But the reality is New Europe has never been about a united Europe per se. It's been about the idea that universally we are one species and that the world's natural tendency should be to come together if we want to build a better world. And the place where the integration is happening uh, most quickly uh, or had been happening most quickly was in Europe and the European Union. Of course, the USA is already uh, a, a, a federal uh, state. Um, Europe is not, but we were taking serious steps in that direction. And the one thing that we were doing, which is a little bit different to the U.S., is that we were bringing all these different cultures together and all these different languages together and making them come together and actually work together, even though uh, we were trying not to wipe them out and completely disregard our individual national histories at the same time. Yeah, so, so it's, 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 a, it's a, the EU is, is yeah, yeah uh, the EU is a unique project and. It's funny because you know we're 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 obviously pro-European, but the amount of times that I hear people say, "Oh, New Europe is an anti-European publication," <laughs> um, is is absolutely dramatic. And this happens because a lot of the time we will pick up and expose scandals uh, relating to the EU and uh, maladministration and misuse of uh, EU funding. And the thing that we say is the only way we can make a better European Union is if we catch the people who are making it problematic mm -hmm. and we not not put them in jail just end this process of of, of happening and the processes of, of of corruption um i just want to ask you i mean uh, and also i want to ask our our viewers right now just to give them the opportunity to have the say so look if you're watching this right now where do you stand in terms of you know the landscape and and uh, um and, and i suppose you want to call it journalistic ethics is it is it okay basically for for people to advocate a specific view? Because here's an interesting challenge, right? I was always raised thinking that journalism should be about objectivity. The older I get, the more I realize that, you know, in the real world, you have various different opinions. And if you don't stand up for what you believe in, uh, then obviously your opinions get drowned out and, uh, you know, uh, corruption runs amok or certain things that you believe in basically don't get achieved. So it's a very, very interesting uh, kind of question that I want to pose to my viewers right now. If you're watching right now, where do you stand? Do you think journalism should advocate certain beliefs, such as a united Europe, which I think a lot of my viewers, at least most of my viewers, probably believe in something like that? And also, a little caveat, 
I do believe in a united Europe, but I don't necessarily believe in all the different policies that the, our current Europe uh, holds. Of course, we can hold that belief, right? But I do kind of advocate this idea of, of unity. And by the way, Billy, uh, again, for anyone who's just tuning in, I just want to also, uh, um, you know, let's say recognize uh, and uh, and support what you communicated, which is, you know, you, you in your core, in New Europe's core, it's about the principle that we are one human race and, uh, and uh, you know, one human species. So, uh, you know, uh, I want to ask the audience, I'd love to hear you in the comments right now and what you think about that. And uh, so, Billy, I mean, let's get back to, to the original question. So you've told us about, you know, where you feel journalism stands. You've told us that, you know, uh, New Europe advocates this specific, this uh, specific uh, ideal or this principle. And, uh, and uh, I guess uh, the next question basically is, uh, you know, uh, um, how, how basically do you take it from here? I mean, you know, you have this ideal, you are kind of like in this like wedge between trying to be as objective as possible while openly having certain viewpoints and uh, obviously, you know, that, that creates sides. Certain people agree, certain people don't. Some people hate you for it as well, right? And some people completely, you know, uh, uh, just don't get you, right? So even though you're trying to advocate for United Europe, some people think you're anti-Europe, right? So, you know, beyond yeah. that and beyond the, the kind of marketplace of opinions, so to speak, which sometimes some opinions stick, they, they take force, they take shape. But my question is, how do you take it a step further and how do you start taking action? Because, you know, we have our jobs, we have our businesses, yeah. right? And, uh, and by the way, hats off for running a business for this long and, and doing it under these conditions. Uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very aware of, you know, what digital disruption has done for the, the publishing industry, specifically, you know, the, uh, the classical publishing industries. So, you know, uh, kudos for actually being able to pivot that into a digital era and to pivot your publication into the digital era. And uh, maybe now is a good moment. Also, we're going to be talking a little bit about strategy, strategies and tactics. But, you know, yeah. as a businessman myself, I know that, you know, my job is to to add value to, to people's businesses, right? I own a digital agency. We consult. We help them with marketing. We help them gain more clients. In any occasion I can get, I will inject, let's say, uh, my beliefs about helping people actually become leaders in their communities and through their commerce and through their business. Sometimes I can't actually do that because business is business. But, you know, uh, beyond that, right, how, wh where do you go from here? Like, you know, uh, how do you start bringing about impact and taking action around your beliefs separately from your business and your publication yeah. and your job as a journalist? Because you have some really so, fascinating um, projects. Uh, I do. I just want to make two comments just on the journalism that I was thinking about um, after you, you made a comment. And then I'll come to kind of other projects inside of work and outside of work because I have projects both in and out, which might be interesting. Um, the first thing that I wanted to say is, you know, you said United Europe, yes, all the way. Just people usually uh, don't understand that we need it to be the right European Union. And can't, we can't just preach being united and being one European Union in the abstract. Uh, so once we have that picture of what is the right EU, then we can move to the next step. And we're making baby steps towards that. But as administrations and political regimes change, of course, that can also be uh, knocked off course. Uh, the second thing is, uh, just on, on journalism, um, to understand a little bit about the realities uh, of, of what's involved. A lot of people will complain in, you know, in, in, in the country you're in, Romania, and in the country that, uh, that uh, we grew up in, Greece, uh, that journalists are corrupt and you know, they're, they're just preaching to, the, to whatever they're, they're, the party that supports them uh, wants. 
And the reality is, if you look at these two countries, there is enough wrong and enough corruption that has gone on that if any benefactor wants to say, here, New Europe, go uh, and, and, and do great investigative journalism on this political party or that ministry or whatever situation, you will always find uh, you know, things that have happened. And it's tragic to say that because there's not enough people actually going out and doing investigative journalism um, there are often, you know, interests that try and intertwine themselves with the media, but you have to try and resist as much as possible. Uh, but at the end of the day, there is good journalism to be done, uh, especially where there is rampant corruption, to try and weed these situations out. Um, so if I was to say to you, Colin, you know, you set, you set up a small media enterprise in, in Romania, I'll give you 10,000 euros to only investigate the Ministry of Environment. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you have a Ministry of Environment. I assume you do. Um, um, so, yeah, so I'll give you, you know, whatever, a million euros to just investigate them. Are you telling me you won't find valuable and good journalism that of, of whatever, some X scandal that has happened in the last 20 years? You'll definitely find something. Oh, yeah, yeah. And we're, we, we have trouble coming to terms with the fact that someone might have wanted to pay you for it. Um, and of course, it's something that should always be uh, made public uh, and, uh, you know, uh, shouldn't happen ultimately. Mm -hmm. But if you were to do that, you'd be doing a great job and an actual service to the, to the, to the country and to the community. Yeah. So that's something to keep in mind. Um, I'll transition now because that, that's not the, the, the discussion we, we wanted to be having. Mm -hmm. um, and you asked me what, how I bring my values into, uh, into my work and outside of work. And... There's, there's two things and two, two or three different projects that I wanted to talk about um, while you go and uh, get yourself a coffee. Um, yeah. I just made a funny comment while you were away, but it's okay. I, I just uh, have to close the window because the, the drilling outside, guys. <laughs> we're in Don't quarantine. worry about it. <laughs> okay, so, yeah. so, you know, a lot of what we do in the New Europe journalism day-to-day isn't always very exciting uh, and it, it doesn't always make us feel uh, that we're providing value even though we are it's one of those incremental things where you're providing very little bit of value at a time so about 10 years ago um, it was 2010 I thought to myself that we need to be doing more and I wanted to um, I wanted to create something a project within the company that would help us uh, feel that we were contributing in a more important way to, to society. So I launched uh, with, uh, well, we, we launched, it wasn't an individual effort. We, we launched a publication called Our World. Mm -hmm. Initially, it was uh, just the first edition of the newspaper of every year. And we took a very different approach. It wasn't us writing the news anymore. Uh, we were only inviting people from around the world to talk about the year ahead, the problems that are coming, the problems that we have, uh, in politics, in industry, in society, anything you could imagine in science um, and how we can deal with them. So we, we try to find always um, not just the famous people. We have a lot of famous people who contribute to these publications, uh, but also the people with amazing ideas uh, and with the values that uh, needs to be kind of propagated to, to make a better society. So uh, this year was our 10th anniversary edition, and I, I want to just plug it because it's a beautiful edition um, here you can see, see the cover. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's the, you know, we're, we're, uh, let me, let me just put it closer, but you know, we're not 
a Greek publication where we, we started in Greece and from Greece, but we are uh, essentially a European and international publication. Mm -hmm. But this year we wanted to bring Greece into it. So we, uh, we, 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 we designed this cover, which is, has a lot of Greek elements. Um, we were also honored by the Greek prime minister who contributed uh, an article to this edition. Uh, we have in the last 10 years, um, if I, I'll, I'll check my notes, but it, it must have been uh, around 20, 30 heads of state that we've had. Look, I, um, I, I had a look at the, the world and it's truly impressive. Anyone watching from Romania, by the way, you will also see contributions from uh, Kodruza, the justice minister, who was a very, very important figure here in Romania because she was in charge of the uh, DNA, which is the anti-corruption uh, um, ministry here, who did a great job cleaning up a lot of the country, only to be, of course, voted out uh, when uh, when the the parties that she was investigating came into power and and found a way basically to kick her out. Who now became actually the justice minister of Europe of Europe. So uh, well, so, something like that. She became the chief European public prosecutor. You know, I'm not going to go into her time at the DNA. We've written extensively on that. Not necessarily myself personally, um, and. We took a bit of a harder line towards some of the issues, but um, you know she's a very important uh, player, and she is going to be critical for the future of Europe because the way she approaches this new job, she's going to be the Europe, the chief European public prosecutor. Uh, her work ha is is just starting as they're building this institution, uh, but you know we're very happy to have her. We also have um, the commissioner, the European commissioner from Romania. Um, and you know, I, I'm very happy that we, we've of course, uh, had her b before in our, in our publication. And I think there's, there's not, um, there's not a lot of publication, uh, a lot of publications that you see that bring in a lot of different, uh, people to this, uh, to, to, to this, to this, uh, product. Uh, you know, the, the two Romanians, uh, Adina Valan and, uh, uh, Lara Kodruta, uh, Kovashi, uh, are, both important people to read and each one takes a different approach to 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 the way they do things uh but there are a lot of great people and we do this um you know we have a partnership with, with the new york times and we have a section where they have articles it's called turning points um also so we have some people from hollywood and some you know really amazing thinkers uh who are all, who have also contributed through them so what, um, before, before you continue i just want to take a moment guys uh to recognize one fact here, right? Billy runs an SME uh, publication, right? New Europe. Hey, New Europe viewers, if you're watching, say hello. Love to hear from you. Uh, hit that like button if you're enjoying this interview and the same for my viewers. But, uh, you know, in essence, Billy runs a small publication, but he's managed through this initiative called Our World to bring, uh, you know, some really, really big heavyweights in terms of, you know, political influence, as you mentioned, Hollywood influence, the prime minister, current prime minister of Greece, the uh, former minister of, uh, uh, or the, what was it, her official title? Sorry, I'm not really into the titles with the EU. Uh, European uh, chief public prosecutor. European chief public prosecutor, uh, Kodruza, which everyone in Romania knows. Uh, and, uh, and he's managed to bring them under this one uh, uh, cause. And I think it's a great example of how, you know, right now, especially when, you know, there's so much crisis and strife going around. If you present an opportunity for leaders, public opinion makers, 
to uh, come under one banner and express a universal truth that they believe in, then you, in effect, become the influencer of the influencers. And Billy's managed to do that, you know, and not with incredibly huge resources. He's not a New York Times publication. So I just wanted to recognize that, Billy, yeah. and to say hi so, to I mean, I, man. That's amazing. I, I should put things in perspective. I mean, we are we are a team of, uh, you know, between 40 and 50 people who are, who, who are making all of the, these things happen. And it's not just me, but when you say SME, of course, this is an SME in, in the media world, uh, because if you consider half of them will work for the editorial side, the other half will work on anything from you know production to things like distribution and uh, deliveries and things like that. So not everyone has a, a frontline kind of job, but everyone matters in this whole puzzle that comes together. Now, talking about our world, uh, you can go visit ourworld.co uh, to, to visit the website. You know, it's amazing what we've done. We've had in the past 10 years, 35, 36 now uh, with uh, Prime Minister Mitsotakis, heads of state, mm. 36. Mm. Um, and it's, it's truly amazing, truly amazing. 17 prime ministers, 18 presidents. Uh, we've had five Nobel laureates, mm. uh, you know, central bankers, um, you know, nearly 100 members of parliament. Uh, you know, I, it's, it's not worth talking, but... Uh, you know, we just wanted to do something that brings people together to talk about how our world can become better and what we need to do. And and this was not a money-making operation. This wasn't the goal of it. And to be honest, I really had to to kind of try and sell it to the to the people who we were already doing business with to you know take an extra you know two, three, five, ten thousand euros out of their pockets to kind of make this effort happen. And it went from being um, a publication that was a side project to being a, a project of its own. And I think this is something that we needed to do as a team and as a group uh, to also provide something that we feel gives back to society. Well, I think, and uh, I want to say, yeah, yeah, go ahead, please, sorry, please. I just want to say that you know, to to just show how much of a not uh, not for profit raison d'etre this specific publication has, we've every year we've tried to give free advertising to organizations that we feel are helping to change the world. Uh, so we've, I think, it must be upwards of 300,000 and under half a million euros worth of advertising that we've given so far in the last 10 years. Uh, but we've done, you know, Medicine Sans Frontier, the Red Cross, uh, the One mm -hmm. Foundation, um, you know, the, U the UN's peacekeeping, um, various UN's, uh, UN organizations, to be honest. Um, and, you know, even non-smoking campaigns, we've, we've given a lot of free advertising as this is part of our personal CSR that we're doing to kind of also help other people, not just in terms of who we invite to write, because we've had some great people write who wouldn't normally be recognized in publications like this, but also by providing these opportunities to get the message, their messages, these organizations' messages across to the leaders uh, that read it, because ultimately our authors are also our readers. Mm -hmm. So this is the kind of community we're trying to foster. Mm -hmm. Well, I just wanted to, again, say, again, hats off, guys. Hey, if you, if you loved this initiative just as much as I do, and if you're equally impressed about uh, the, 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 you know, the caliber of people that he's been able to put together under this, you know, uh, this idea of uniting people and, and uh, how can we make our world better. Such a very, very, you know, really, really simple idea, right? Then I'd love for you to hit that like button, hit that heart button, share a little, uh, you know, hello and what's up to Billy and, uh, and hats off to Billy. I'm just going to read quickly a, a comment from one of our earlier questions. So Daniel Rodake around the uh, question I posed about uh, journalism and where it's going. I think that journalism will always be biased, but you have to keep your common sense. Nowadays, you see news, false news everywhere. 
beyond, beyond what can be acceptable. Unity is more powerful than separation, but I think uh, the UE, that's how we say it in Romania, the, the EU, must reinvent itself, must find the balance between centralization and independence and autonomy. Thank you very much for your comment there, Daniel. And uh, hey, Billy, just to continue a little bit about this project, because guys, if you're tuning in right now and you're just joining, like this show is called Architects of the Future. And it's literally about people uh, creating a meaningful impact in their own way right now so that they can design the kind of world that we want to live in. And I think a project like the world, Billy, is pretty much the stuff of what I, I, I love to talk about. And I'd love for you to share a little bit with with the readers about, you know, how did how did you come about bringing this project? You know, what were the challenges and, you know, kind of like what would you advise people who who would love to, uh, let's say, uh, you know, following this example of putting something together that could be impactful and that could influence the influencer, so to speak, as in your particular case. Yeah, I, I do want to take a moment just after this to to give some feedback to, to Daniel uh, on, on his comment, because there's there's actually quite a lot to say there. Um, it would involve, uh, I think, me going a little bit into politician mode rather than journalist. <laughs> um, but uh, let me tell you, uh, the bringing uh, the Our World publication together was not easy. Uh, I must say that, uh, you know, the challenges that I faced uh, internally and externally uh, have been quite big. Um, internally, you have to convince the entire team uh, that it's worth investing resources in. And I think, uh, okay, I, I was at the position to be able to, uh, let's say, dictate downwards that this is a project that we will do. But when it comes to the upper echelon of the organization, to get the agreement to spend, to spend the resources and the time of our team to do that um, was not a given. Um, but ultimately, it was difficult uh, to convey. I, it, the easiest thing to do with a project is convey your passion for it, right? right. Um, the most difficult thing to do is convey how the project itself will have value. Once I stepped away from being able to uh, to convey just my passion for the project because I was very into it, um, to actually conveying what it will bring, and it will okay if you want to list the values, it will of course give the new Europe brand uh, further reach. It will give um, it will make policymakers who were not previously let's say uh, engaging with us have a further tool and a way to engage with us, mm -hmm. and it will have a readership beyond the regular um, readership that we see with New Europe, which is a lot of people who are uh, involved in making policy, politics, uh, and the laws for the for the European Union. Uh, you know, the industry stakeholders, uh, the policymakers, all the different institutions, think tanks, NGOs, diplomats. Uh, so we engaged further with civil society, I think, uh, through this project. Mm -hmm. Now in Greece, just to give you an example, this year uh, we had, I think, over 300 um, hits in the media in every single um, media group that you can imagine, wow. the ones that would normally love us and the ones who would normally hate us. Um, everyone wrote about the magazine, uh, the intervention that Mitsotakis had, but also about the cover that we did and how we, we gave a lot of value to, to Greece and mm -hmm. the issue of the Parthenon marbles uh, on our cover. And I think for, for anyone who hasn't seen the cover, do go and look at it, especially if you're you interested. Show, show it again, Billy. Show it again. You have it there, right? Yeah, it's it's just difficult to, to fit on the on the screen. Um, yeah, yeah, you have uh, ancient Greece. The marbles they're missing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially so we have uh, Boris Boris Johnson. Oh, <laughs> let's see, Boris Johnson over here oh, uh, trying great. to drag out that's great. the that's <laughs> and we have the the little dog here trying to pull the karyatid back. 
um, and that is my dog, and that's that's the the most important thing I can do with my power in a media organization <laughs> is to get my dog on the cover of our world, and he's been there for the last three or four editions. I love um, that. I love I, that. You know, also, I mean, uh, one of the things I talk about a lot: if you are someone that you know wants to actively assume a position of leadership. You know, the, the the secret sauce of leadership is actually being more yourself, being more quirky, because actually that's what people remember. Like I'm gonna remember this about your pug. It was uh, and I love that we actually had a zoom in on your on your on your cover there because it actually brought more meaning to what you were doing there. Yeah. Um, so you know, I, I, things go beyond the the magazine. Um, I think it's just a, a way of, of, of living outside of work. I I'm involved with the Association of European Journalists and uh, the Brussels Europe Press Club. Um, I sit on both boards. Mm -hmm. uh, and there we're really trying to do what we can for the profession itself. Mm -hmm. uh, the, in the Association of European Journalists, we try and empower uh, journalists, both who are uh, new to the profession but have also been there for a while. Uh, we try and create the circumstances to um, give tools to to the younger journalists who want to come in into the into the field. Um, now, you know, I've I asked, I've been asked on different conferences and things. What do I suggest to people who want to become journalists? Uh, and I always say, don't do it. Don't become a journalist. <laughs> and I always try and get them away from that because you know the the pay is is not the greatest in the world. It's it's kind of like a, a school teacher. You have to be a special kind of crazy to want to do that kind of job. And it's a very valuable job and it gives uh, meaning to what you do every day and it gives back to the world and the community. But it's not the job um, that will necessarily um, give you, uh, you know, everything that you've dreamed of. Uh, that's why I say it takes a special kind of crazy because you have to be in love with a job and this is where you have to see the real value coming. Mm -hmm. So, the, I, you know, I advise them not to do it, but then the people who end up doing it are the people who don't care. And it's exactly the kind of people that you need uh, doing this job, ultimately. Yeah, that must be actually uh, not an easy thing to do to manage that kind of uh, a group of people and bring them together, is it, Billy? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's not. And the, the egos and the tensions are often very high. Uh, but ultimately, we, you know, we, we get along. We've, we've had cases in the past where... <laughs> You know, we've nearly had fist fights in the newsrooms. We've, we've nearly had everything you can imagine. Um, and, uh, you know, there's the stereotypes there. Journalists drink a lot. I mean, <laughs> I've, I've had situations in the past. I, I probably shouldn't say this on, uh, on a live stream, but I've had situations in the past where there was overconsumption of alcohol during work, for example. Um, I, funny story, I once, I had forgotten my laptop at the office, and I once came back like at 8 p.m. To, to go pick it up, and I found an intern uh, uh, drunk and asleep on the toilet. Like, it's, uh, you know, things, things have happened. Um, it's, it's, it's not crazy. Uh, just, I just want to recognize um, the sketch artist, that, uh, the, the, the artist that did the, the cover of our world, uh, Lavarendis. Uh, you, you, can, you can find his details uh, both in ourworld.co uh, and um, on on the internet, um, um, but Lavredis uh, Choretis is a great sketch artist, and I, and I hope you'll you'll be able to see some of his work, um, or even you know pick him out to do a sketch for you. We've been working together for the last uh, I think four years, and he's been amazing amazing with these sketches uh, and bringing kind of the concept we come up with to reality. Uh, Billy, I mean, um, just uh, I'll just 
summarize a little bit for the audience just joining in now and say a quick shout out actually to Michael Zakariadis. How you doing, man? It's been a long time. Uh, hey, Mike. <laughs> you, you guys stay in contact with Mike? Uh, no, I've, I've talked to his brother a little bit, George, from time uh -huh, to time. Uh -huh. um, it's been a while now. Uh, I'll say what's up to Bogdan Popescu. Bogdan Popescu is part of uh, Urbanize Hub, this initiative that I'm a part of that uh, promotes uh, uh, um, urban, um, urban strategy, urban development, and specifically around smart cities and, uh, and greener uh, policies for, for future cities. Uh, Nick McCreese, what's up, man? Really, really good to see you. Say a quick hello so we know that you're here and say a quick hello hey, to Nick. Billy. I saw, I saw him very recently, actually, in London. I was uh, walking uh, along the street uh, and, and uh, I saw him having uh, a coffee with Kiros. Uh, <laughs> good, good times. Um, I, I just wanted to, to go back to Daniel's comment and just respond to him uh, because we didn't do that and I don't want him to be left out. Yeah, yeah, please um, do. And also, I'll just mention that Daniel also says it's really great what you realized, Billy, and your accomplishment, accomplishments speak volume despite all the setbacks. Congrats. And, and again, uh, uh, just for those who are just tuning in, and then you can address Daniel's uh, comment because it's also going to be relevant for the people just tuning in. I'd love also the opinion of the people tuning in. But uh, if you're just tuning in, what we've covered so far with my guest here, Alexandros Koronakis. I have a hard time calling you Alexandros. I always want to call you Billy because that's how I know you from Don't high school. Don't worry about it. And, uh, you know, what we're covering with, uh, with Alexandros is uh, his journey from uh, being around journalism from an early age, watching his father, you know, uh, create this publication in essence and then having to be in the position to start running it from a very, very early age. And, you know, it's an experience that I think a lot of actually my, my viewers, if you're watching now, you've probably had a similar kind of experience because I know your backgrounds. I've had a similar experience being thrusted into running our family business from a very, very early age and being challenged actually to put yourself out of your comfort zones. And, you know, for those of you who maybe haven't and you're kind of like, you know, on the fence about, you know, whether you want to push forward through your comfort zones, maybe you have like a really big dream, a really big project and you, you know, you, you're, you know, worried about what people might think, what are the effort involved, you know, I think me and Billy will tell you, just jump, basically jump into that unknown. And when you find yourself there, you'll be surprised actually about how, how much of you and the, the greatest version of you will actually show up. So we've been talking about that according uh, to Billy's journey so far, being thrusted into, you know, the political sphere in a very, very competitive arena because his publication, New Europe, New Europe is a publication around uh, policymakers in uh, the European uh, community. And, uh, and, um, and he talks about basically what's happening in, uh, in the European community. And we've also talked about how, you know, uh, journalism is evolving, how previously we were brought up where journalism was about objective, basically, uh, reporting on various different matters and how now it's going back. And I did not know this, Billy. Very interesting. You brought a little history to a little history lesson to me and my readers. How actually historically journalism was was uh, was initially actually for uh, advocating specific political opinions and supporting specific political parties and leaders and promoting them. And now it's kind of coming back around to that. We talked about you know how of course New Europe and and uh, Billy has also a specific. Or some specific values that they espouse or that they advocate, which of course is described in the, in the publication's title, New Europe. And we've talked about how you know he kind of dances the fine line between objectivity, which is you know what he believes in, but at the same time, of course, 
uh, advocating for the kind of values which I also can agree with, which is basically unity. And it's not just about Europe, it's about you know the world itself. And then how, you know beyond the business arena, guys, because there's business, right? And then there's opportunities, those rare opportunities to do stuff which create an impact, which you know it's not about the money. You probably don't ever see a return for many, many years. And we talked specifically about his project, which is a really beautiful project, Billy. I'll say again, big congrats. I would encourage anyone stepping in right now to go check out uh, the world, right? Which our is world. Our world, excuse me. Um, and the title speaks for itself. And just as a recap, Our World basically is an annual publication, right? It's an annual uh, edition. Yes, that's right. And every single year, Billy has brought together, uh, you know, real heavyweights in terms of the political sphere. This year, he brought in uh, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, the prime minister of Greece, uh, and who's doing a great job, by the way, in turning around uh, Greece and the economy and leading, actually, uh, Europe in terms of digital transformation in their fight for the coronavirus and actually becoming a model of how you can respond to digitally coronavirus, you know, pretty interesting stuff. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, people like uh, Elena Kodruza, who was formerly the, you know, chief prosecutor of, uh, of DNA here in Romania, fighting corruption, and now is currently in Europe actually doing the same thing, being the chief, pro chief prosecutor of, uh, of Europe, is it, Billy, right? Yes, uh, yes. And, the European, uh, chief European public prosecutor. You. Sorry, you know, I'm not with the title so much. but <laughs> and, uh, and so we talked about the world and we talked about how Billy and his team of 40 people have managed basically over the last 10 years to, you know, create an impact by bringing together all these influencers, all these, uh, you know, uh, opinion leaders to actually discuss around one common principle, one common value, which is how can we improve our world? Okay, as simple as that. And how Billy's been able to do that, right? Not being necessarily one of the biggest publications in the world, but certainly being a relevant and very, very uh, uh, meaningful publication in his own name. We're getting there, Colin. So, well, hey, man, keep getting there and keep going, man. You're doing really, really great. So I. So now we can go back to answering Daniel's question. Look, I just wanted to say. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to to, to say uh, that you know it's not just politicians that have written for the Our World publication. Uh, we have some great names. We have Greg Marinovich, who is a Pulitzer Prize-winning photographer, cool. uh, who talks about gender violence and poverty and migration and and xenophobia mm -hmm. uh, in South Africa. You know, he shared one of his. Um, photographs with us that we've printed in the publication, um, a very hard-hitting photograph with uh, people loading one of their relatives into a, 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 in a coffin, which is being loaded onto a truck. Uh, and this is someone who got beaten and killed. Um, we also have uh, different names. We have Nick Butter. Uh, Nick Butter is the first human being to run a marathon in every single country in the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I invited him, I said, Nick, write whatever you want. And he didn't write about running. He did write about how uh, his viewpoint and his perspective of life has changed after visiting all the areas and all the countries in the world and all the problems that he saw, uh, how they put things in perspective and how they change the way that he lives his life nowadays. Mm -hmm. So it's not just a politics publication. Uh, do go see it, ourworld.co. I'll get back now to, to Daniel's comment. Um, first of all, thank you uh, for your, your, your nice words. Um, it's, it's been a hell of a ride. Um, I must say again, you know, I didn't start this by myself. I uh, sat on the shoulders of the, the, the people who had the resources, uh, who didn't really have the resources, but had at least enough resources, ideas being their main one and uh, uh, their, their personal dedication. To, to make this something, and that is my, my father and uh, my mother. My mother's passed away now, but 
my father is still very much. Thank you. Um, it's been a while, uh, but uh, you know, I, I still think about her uh, every day and, and talking about the business. It's important to kind of recognize that she was a big part um, uh, and not in just a way of supporting my father, how you would imagine in traditional couples uh, 30, 40 years ago, but she was an active part. You know, she wrote a lot about culture and uh, was doing a lot of the uh, writing about the museums and the expedition and uh, 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 the uh, different exhibitions there. Um, but my father is, is really who I learned a lot about journalism from, a lot about business from, uh, and I still learn from him today. Uh, he's now just 80, uh, and wow. I'm still learning from him every day. Mm -hmm. um, thankfully, I've gotten to the point where I've learned enough on my own that I've also taught him a few things, <laughs> which is nice where you see this, this back and forth. Uh -huh. um, but he, he is someone, and, and, and I say that for people, not for their parents so much, but uh, wherever you can find sources of influence, people who you really believe in, yeah. um, get take as much as you can from them. And I, you know, I, I've, I've been lucky enough to talk to to millionaires, billionaires, CEOs, um, heads of state in this job. And whenever you know, if it's not for an interview, I try and get these personal gems out of them to try and understand what it is that makes them tick, how they think, and how is the way they think different to the um, average human being, if I can even use that term. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, Daniel, sorry, sorry, I didn't answer your question. Uh, yes, it, it, by and large, not just journalism, but politics and everything we do every day should be common sense. It's very difficult to see how people have become so polarized in this day and age that they throw common, common sense out the window because they have to advocate uh, they feel a strong need to advocate or they feel that if they don't advocate for whoever, for whoever their employer is, uh, then they will lose their job. I, I don't know. I think it's, it's, it's a matter of passion. And I think that with too much passion uh, comes a bias that kills common sense and that we often need to take a step back from what we do, especially as we become more passionate. We should take a step back and see if what we're doing is actually just common sense or if we've gone a bit too far. Now, regarding the EU, um, you know, you say the EU needs to reinvent itself, but it needs to find the balance between centralization and independence and autonomy. The one thing that I think that we have learned from the uh, B word, the Brexit, is that the EU um, is what it is, um, but the EU is not what most people think. So you think that there is not enough autonomy for the member states and independence. The reality is um, that there is not independence and autonomy when it comes to your municipality. Um, that's because we've devolved the powers and sent it up, up the food chain to the national level. So the municipality can't always decide uh, to do to decide to do what the mayor wants to do. Um, the EU is a little bit like that. We've decided what we're going to decide for all together. That doesn't mean we've lost our say in what happens. We have the European Council, which is composed of all the heads of state of the European Union. Whenever there's a decision to be made, they decide it all together. If it's a decision on a very topical issue, uh, such as environment, it'll be the environment ministers who get together and decide. But ultimately, your country no matter what EU country you're from, will always have a say in what happens. And not just the final say of whether something happens or not, because there is various ways with which that decision is, is made. Uh, uh, now we've moved mostly towards a, a, 
a qualified majority where, where certain minimums are kept, uh, which, you know, you need to have enough countries and enough populations represented um, to make that decision. Uh, beyond just the, the number of, of uh, leaders you need for majority and uh, a qualified majority. Um, but we, we need to remember that they are there making the decision. But beyond that, you also have the European Parliament, where all the, your members um, are represented uh, and working with all of the other countries, all of the members from every other country, to shape the policies that come out of the European Union. We also have the European Commission, where you have a European commissioner, uh, Adina Valan, uh, for, for Romania, um, who, by the way, is a fantastic commissioner uh, and has had a fantastic career in the European uh, Union. And as MEP, she did amazing things too. Um, not so uh, involved and polarized on the national level uh, as, as you would expect of a politician coming out of, of the national level. She has a, a greater overarching vision for Europe and uh, she just she tries to make that happen. Um, so I think you need to recognize there the commissioners are a bit of a strange thing because they don't work for the member state. They theoretically work for Europe as a whole. They're not your commissioner is not supposed to be there to champion Romania's interests. The reality is, it's, the reality is they do a little bit, or at least they keep an eye out and make sure that nothing goes super wrong, mm -hmm. and to push in the right direction wherever possible. Uh, but this isn't uh, what the treaty says they should do. The treaty says they should be the guardians of the treaties. Um, so ultimately, the member state is very involved at everything that happens at the EU level. And you know what? You say we need centralization and independence and autonomy on, on one hand, or at least you hint that that might be an issue for some countries. Uh, but what about when we want the EU to step in and help with something like the coronavirus? You know, we're very quick to blame the EU. And of course, there is some blame to say that they didn't move fast enough in some areas. But the reality is this is not an EU competence. Health is not an EU competence. It's a member state competence. And maybe we'll think twice now. Maybe we'll think that, you know what, maybe on health, mm -hmm. this should be uh, decided at the EU level so that when something like this happens, there is, you know, a million ventilators, a hundred million masks, all centrally made by somewhere where all the EU pitches resources, and then we have enough to deal with a crisis. Um, you know, we, we see this with the uh, European, uh, with Frontex, the European Border and Coast Guard Frontex, uh, where countries have pooled resources together. There's border guards uh, coming in from all the various EU member states. And if they're requested by Frontex, within three days, they have to mobilize and go to a specific area. And this is how, you know, something like a health crisis team would work as well. Uh, and by the way, there are doctors uh, who can be... Uh, uh, moved at the EU level as well. It's a different mechanism, but let's not talk about that. But I'm just saying is that the more power you give to Europe, as long as you're part of that power and decision-making process, that shouldn't be a problem. The rest is just national politics and rhetoric that politicians use to get elected and re-elected. And they say, I'm going to push back uh, against the European Union, who's trying to make our bananas more straight or our toasters uh, less powerful or our, mm -hmm. what is it? It's the it's the kettles. The British had a problem with the kettles. And because, because there were, apparently there was some sort of regulation where the max wattage of a kettle had to be regulated, I don't know what. Uh, come on, guys. Get it together. We're working for the common good. That comes sometimes with a little bit of sacrifice, and that should be okay. So that's my little my little uh, preaching uh, on this. On that, I mean, you know, also uh, coming from the point of view of someone who is not, let's say, always 
the best informed about what's going on at EU policy level, uh, about also what different policies and efforts are made actually for the greater good. Uh, you know, I think the, the big issue also is, you know, we don't get to hear so much about that kind of news. I mean, it's not, uh, let's say, uh, always, let's say, a big focus of the media here. And as a result, like you said, we do get the, retor- the rhetoric and, of course, we do focus on the negative. Another lesson I've learned lately about being part of this uh, Urban Talks community, a big shout out to Grazian and Bogdan Popescu, by the way, if you're watching. Uh, and by the way, we should do something with Billy. But, uh, uh, you know, is, you know, being more informed as a citizen, right? I'm starting to be more informed as a citizen of my country, which before I wasn't. And I wasn't really even that interested, to be honest. I was going in about my own way. But, you know, as you grow and you become more conscientious, you start to realize also your effect on others and how everything is connected. So you start to look at these things. And uh, I guess, you know, this is a great opportunity for me right now. And I'm going to start getting a little bit more involved, following a little bit more of your work and talking to you a little bit more about this. Because, to be honest, I am a little bit in the dark about what's going on at EU level, and I'm not so engaged as an EU citizen per se. So I think that's probably also one of the other issues. Would you agree? Uh, absolutely. Um, just a shout out to Eleni, who is in Frankfurt. Uh, Guten Morgen uh, over there. Um, I absolutely think that that's an issue. And um, thankfully, it is an issue that we're, we've been dealing with as a society, I think, in the last few years. Um, we've been seeing that the EU is a little bit more important than we've believed or at least that we've been willing to recognize and that is a bit of national politics as well uh but we are seeing more and more coverage of eu affairs happen uh across media around the world uh not just in europe um we are seeing this happen at it (laughs) not well the the negative positive balance is is always going to be an issue um as long as we as long as we see an us versus them divide uh, Greeks versus Bulgarians, mm-hmm. uh, Bulgarians versus Germans, whatever. Uh, we will all, always see this uh, negative news come out. I, I don't think it's the right way to go. Um, I think we need to refocus our attention and our energy into the positive and into the collective. But that's something that is not uh, it is not just a snap decision. You know, you have to come up with an overarching strategy for the whole European Union mm-hmm. and then try and transpose that internally. Um, you know, the one thing I will say is that we had the biggest election turnout uh, in the European elections that we, we've seen. Um, Same on a national maybe, level, by the way. All over the, at least all over Europe on a national level, I think turnouts have been bigger than ever. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's something that we need to keep the momentum of and uh, help motivate the people remain interested because it's not just because we have a crisis in Brexit that people should be interested in what the EU is doing. Uh, and I say that because we can't complain that a lot of decision happened at a level that is outside of the national if we're not paying attention to what is happening at the european level and of course the government is paying attention and they're part of that process uh you you just often don't pay attention to it the truth is that we write about a lot of these things national media also write about these things but you're not going to read them you personally aren't going to sit to read an article about what the EU's ministers decided on topic X, Y, Z, you feel a bit detached from it. So that's what we need to change. And that's not uh, something that we can do without an overarching strategy. And uh, just uh, again, let me ask you, the audience, guys, audience members watching now live or watching later, right? How, how, how do you feel like on a scale of basically of, uh, you know, very, very involved, engaged, and uh, having enough know-how about what's going on on an EU level in terms of policy making and how that affects you. Uh, you know, how engaged do you find yourself as an EU citizen, right? 
Are you basically on you know the lower end of the spectrum, which I would admit I am right now, which is I'm not so aware about what's going on. I do have per perhaps, you know, like a, a belief formed through other people's opinions, and I'll be very, very open about that. Or do you feel like, you know, you, uh, you are quite engaged, you understand what's going on. And thirdly, I'd like to ask you and love to hear you in the comments. Are you willing to get more engaged? Are you willing to learn more? Okay, let me hear you in the comments. I'd love to see what you think about that. And Billy, let's, uh, let's move the topic on now to one of the final uh, uh, discussion points I want to make with you, which is, you know, um, let's talk a little bit about practic some practical matters about how you've managed and, and uh, how you've managed basically to transition your newspaper, right? When you took it over or when you started actually being involved, uh, it was still a traditional newspaper. There was a lot of print, uh, printed, uh, or it was basically a lot of print distribution. You still probably have print distribution because you're a niche and, and you you know you have that. But you know what's the transition been like, and how did you manage to transition basically your publication into a you know digital media era and a technology era? And I'm sure like a lot of our viewers who are kind of people who are you know uh, aspiring leaders would want to know how they can also take advantage of digital. So uh, it's interesting because we were very ahead of the curve when it comes to technology in the early days. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I remember the internet was just coming together and we had started something called a BBS where people will dial up from around the world and they could on a, on one of those CRT screens, read wow. the news just in text. And they would, they were people dialing from like Australia and, you know, with a username and password that they had to pay for and to read crazy. the news. Uh -huh. um, you know, this is, alongside the development of the World Wide Web. Uh, so, you know, when the World Wide Web be became uh, an essential tool, we started uh, using it more and more. We built our website. Um, initially, it was easier. Uh, as things become more complex, it's become harder. Uh, it's become harder because you need to spend more and more resources into developing your digital tools uh, for your readers. Uh, we try and do it always in a way that's cost-effective. So if we find tools that we can use that already exist on the market, uh, rather than building our own, we will take existing tools and adapt them uh, to to kind of re reduce the cost um, at the at the sacrifice of certain functionality, of certain or certain extras that you would have if you had designed something on your own. Mm -hmm. um, you know, to think about, we have our database is massive. We have uh, you know millions of pieces of data. If you count. 27 years now of, because we, we launched a newspaper in 93, uh, 27 years now of uh, news writing and aggregating and whatever you want. Um, making that database work, work is, is just <laughs> unbelievably difficult, believe me. Um, so it, ultimately, it just comes to putting the right teams together on the digital side, uh, leveraging tools that already exist on the market, being smart enough, and I advocate this to whoever is going to be involved with entrepreneurship, you have to know what is involved with every single position at your company. You don't necessarily have to you know, know the technicalities of how people do things. A little bit of technical knowledge would be good at every uh, level, uh, but you need to know what's involved because you can then understand what the best way to do things is. And you're gonna be able to propose solutions that you wouldn't have if you don't, don't know a little bit about how 
um, computer programming works or how layout works or how what the editorial process is like for a journalist writing an article. Uh, and I mentioned these because they're part of the the, the workflows of a, a newspaper. And also you um, be, be able to better judge the performance of, uh, of your teammates and the people you bring absolutely. to do that. And, and not just your teammates, you know, if I outsource something to a computer developer and, and I want him to build something for my website, I now know if him charging me 10 hours is ridiculous or if it's a good deal. So you need to know a little bit about how uh, the technical side works and the uh, programming language works and that tools exist like libraries for them to pick out from, that often there are uh, pieces of code that they can find ready and adapt to what you're doing. They don't yeah. always have to start from zero. So right, all of these kinds of things are th things you need to, to, to know. Um, the other thing is that, you know, I, I think we need to take a step back and and uh, think about what it is to be an entrepreneur. And that means to be able to put in certain resources, uh, make them work together to make a product and get a certain output Then that you can then monetize in a way that brings back more than you had put in. Mm -hmm. And that that needs to be sustainable over the long term. Even if you have some bad quarters or some good quarters over the long term, you need to have uh, enough cash flow to, to make it all work. So the number one thing I, I tell people when uh, they ask me what is the key to entrepreneurship, uh, I'll say cash flow. Of course, that's not the first part. That is after you've already started being an entrepreneur. Um, but the most critical thing is cash flow. And you know, for an organization that's never taken out a loan, we never took it out a bank loan. Um, I can say that we're very proud to have been able to, to, to keep this thing afloat and powerful and growing to the extent that we can. And it is um, all focused around cash flow. I totally agree with that. That's actually something that uh, I, uh, one of the first things that I talk about as a priority for, uh, you know, the, the clients that I coach around uh, agency or growing your agency or software company, which is my kind of expertise, is definitely about cash flow. Cash flow is the lifeblood of your business, which ultimately means also that sales is incredibly important and how you manage basically sales. I think a lot of people, yeah. they, they believe that, you know, you kind of build it and then they sort of come which uh, is, a little bit, is a little bit naive. And this is kind of the part about uh, growing up and maturing as an entrepreneur, but also a leader, which is, of course, the product is important. The product is your values, your beliefs, your love, your effort, your labor, right? But at the same time, right, if no one knows about it, then, you know, your product actually means nothing. And if you, for example, as a leader, like taking away also from entrepreneurship now or taking a, a step to the side from entrepreneurship, if you as a leader, for example, believe that your competitors or believe that certain political leaders or believe that, you know, uh, whatever on the marketplace have too much power and don't deserve it, that's also because you're not stepping up as a leader in learning the crucial skills of sales, of, you know, networking. Billy, I imagine you're probably an amazing networker and of actually promoting what you believe in. And that goes back to what we talked about earlier about, you know, the role of, uh, of journalism and whether you should promote what you believe in or not. But I just wanted to, to add that because it's a good point, Billy. Preach, preach. I completely agree with you there. Um, and, you know, uh, the, the thing that is very hard for me and um, as, as a manager and as a, as a member of a team, it's very hard for me sometimes to, to understand that people don't think in the same way that I do. And I've grown up with this entrepreneurship mentality, so it doesn't work now. If I, it matter if I work for New Europe or, or somewhere else um, or if I go into a private company, I will always carry the, the ethos of an entrepreneur with me, which means do what you can to keep costs down uh, and do what you can to maximize uh, the impact and the income for your company, because ultimately that will help 
the company grow. But and beyond that, I, I think also where it differs a lot, Billy, is also because I'm obviously in the same boat, is that people, uh, entrepreneurs care. They really, really care, right? They put a lot of love, effort, and attention to detail. And of course, you know, I kind of grew up and realized in the beginning, it would really hurt me that people in my team or other people don't share those kind of values and they're a little bit daisy about certain things. But then, of course, I realized that that is the definition of ownership, right? You, by owning this thing, yeah. uh, you, of course, become or becomes a labor of love. And that's also why I advocate responsibility in your life in general. If you own the decisions in your life, what you're doing in terms of your your work if it becomes an attitude really then you do have this kind of like little edge where yeah. you can you know um, uh, pay a lot more attention to detail and and, so, and as a result are more valued yeah so i, so I, I think I'm, I'm i'm i think i don't agree with the first part of what you said mm -hmm. i think being an owner uh is not what makes you care and i'll, I'll tell you why i say that i think it's a matter of um what is at your core or what you develop yourself to be yeah. because i see that when now I get involved with whether it's associations, charities, NGOs, mm -hmm. I give it my all as if it was a business and as if it was my own. And that's why I, I say that I don't think that you need to own something to give your all to it. You need to, you know, it's not easy sometimes to believe uh, in what you're doing, uh, but you can dedicate yourself to evolving into something that you can believe, believe in more. Of course, for massive organizations, that becomes harder, mm -hmm. uh, but that doesn't mean you can't nudge things so that you can put your little stone in and you, you can make the organization change just that little bit that would help you feel more comfortable. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's more about the attitude of ownership, but yeah, I, I agree exactly, with what you're saying. Exactly. I agree with so, what you're saying. So yeah. I'll, I'll tell you an example, and I think people who don't feel this attitude, if they want to do a little exercise to try and help them shift towards that, um, what I do is, and I don't do this consciously, I think I don't make a conscious choice to do it. I, it's just something I've done for a long time. Um, if something piques my interest, if I go into a restaurant or a bar, um, or if I go into a cinema, or if I go and buy a new couch, uh, very often I'll, I'll, I'll sit there and beyond choosing my couch, I will think about what the entrepreneurial process, what are the mechanics, the corporate structure and the labor that has gone into making this product mm -hmm. and why it's priced at that level, mm -hmm. whether it should be priced at that level uh, and what are all the processes that, that have helped that get there. So I'll go into a restaurant and I'll think about, right, how many tables do they have? How many people are they serving at the moment? How many people do they serve on average? What's the staff behind the counter? What's the staff in the kitchen? How much does it cost to rent this place? And I'll, I'll run a balance sheet in my head and kind of just try and figure out how that business would work. Um, so it's it's a it, this is an attitude. And once you start doing it more and more, and thinking about how much it costs to produce a book or a pair of scissors or your mobile phone, then you can start to think about an, uh, uh, entrepreneurship in a way that says, right now, my job in this team, even if I'm an assistant sales manager, is to be that cog in the machine that helps all of this come together, so the final product can be sold mm -hmm. and then that i could make my money as an employee mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. people seem to sometimes focus on the short term of oh let me get through the day that's not what we should be doing here we should be considering that we all work as a team and if we all work well together our uh small piece even if it's much part of a much bigger pu puzzle matters immensely to how the whole product looks works and feels well look uh, i i just want to stop you just a tiny second because uh thank you first of all because you just Put in words a process that I realize that I also do. Just now I realize I do, but I do it uh, unconsciously or subconsciously, which is what you just mentioned. And I think actually that's one of the 
the gifts and side effects of entrepreneurship if you have the eyes to see it, but it, it kind of uh, uh, you know instills a sense of awareness about your surroundings, about what goes into things. And, uh, and like you very well said earlier, you don't have to be an owner. You don't have to be an entrepreneur. This is an attitude and a way of life. The more aware you are, the more engaged you are, the more meaningful things become, the more pleasurable things become, right? Because we're creatures basically that, you know, our continual search of meaning. If you feel like you are in a dead-end job, like you're completely bored, and maybe you feel like you don't have options, before you go jump ship, which probably you should do, by the way, at one point, right, if you feel that way, but before you do that, right, uh, it won't help you to carry that same attitude to the next job because it's just going to feel the same. And, you know, I would recommend what Billy just said, actually. Great exercise, Billy, by the way, is just sit a second and absorb your surroundings. Be a little bit more aware about what's going on in the team, in the company, what resources are being put in, what are the... The challenges that the individuals in charge face in terms of managing others as well to get that final objective done, which ultimately, whether you like it or not, whether you think it's good enough for you or not, right? Uh, but it is the produce which actually delivers your reward, which is you know your ability to put food on the table. So yeah, wonderful, wonderful actually observation, Billy. Yeah, um, look, the the only other thing that I, I haven't really touched upon that I would love to kind of bring in is the, the issue of charity. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time writing a, an article about this, which I, I didn't publish um, because we had a spacing problem in the Our World magazine. I had to bring in someone who came in last minute. Um, but I, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize how important Charity is not charity in, in, in just the literal term, but just giving back wherever you can. Um, you know, a lot of people think you, you might walk along the street, you might have 50 cents in your pocket and not give it to someone who is there begging. Okay, um, apart from the fact that you might believe that the begging circuit is controlled by people and, you know, it's not going to help because, you know, uh, moving aside, if there is someone there who actually needs money and you have 50 cents in your pocket, you might feel bad that you have only 50 cents. You might think that that's not a big, con big enough contribution. Um, you might think that going to volunteer in a, a small NGO might not really make a difference. What are you doing after all? You're just volunteering in a small NGO. But I think um, people need to give whatever they can, wherever they can in terms of their time. Um, it doesn't always have to be money. And to think not about what it costs to them. You might make a million dollars a year um, and to you, you know, a hundred euros might not be a great sacrifice, but it might change the other person's life. Even if it's just for a day or half a day or, you know, a week, uh, give whatever you can, wherever you can, because it's not about how much it matters to you, but how much it has an impact on the people who are receiving it. Um, I've been involved with a charity. It's nearly 10 years now, um, called 12 hours for Greece. We started it when Greece was at the crisis. Uh, it wasn't started by me. I'm, I'm, I'm just a volunteer there. Uh, we're a team of five or six volunteers. Um, it was started by a Belgian um, man who is uh, who, who's very important. He, he used to be the head of the European Commission representation in Belgium. Uh, his name is Jimmy Jamar, and he's a philoline, if you can uh, mm -hmm. still use that word nowadays. And we started a, a charity organization where we used to have a, a full all-day event and raise money for different causes in Greece. At the time, it was more about the crisis um, that's evolved. You know, we used to do some really beautiful things. 
um, where we would get a, a book like Plato and have people come in and read segments from it in their different language. So, you know, you would get a, a Chinese woman coming in with her own little book of Plato because we didn't offer Chinese, of course. We could only offer a few languages by ourselves, uh, which meant that, you know, we would have to cut up snippets, etc. But some people would come in with their own books in different languages that we weren't offering and read in their own language, which was very moving because, you know, apart from the, the Greek, the English, the French, we also had the, 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 the Flemish. Uh, but people would come in from everywhere and read, you know, anything from, you know, Russian to, to, to Chinese. Uh, amazing project. And then it would culminate in a, in a concert. So we would sell concert tickets, make some money there, um, invite people from Greece. Uh, the great, great Lavredis uh, Macheritsas was uh, one of the first people to become really involved with the project. And he came back, I think, five times. And, uh, you know, may he rest in peace. But he was really a, a big part of, of what we would think about when we would think about the 12 hours of Greece. Um, and he would he would do it. And, you know, 10 musicians would come along. And essentially, we just cover their costs to, to come and play. And it was, you know, amazing for them to, to come and believe in this project. So I'm going to say we all now, nowadays, we don't focus on the crisis because it has passed. Mm-hmm. Um, for the past couple of years, we've been donating the money to an organization um, that gives fuel to schools, uh, mostly in northern Greece, um, where it gets really cold in the winter and some of the schools don't have heating or they don't have enough uh, diesel fuel to power the heating. Mm-hmm. So we donate fuel and we've fueled hundreds of schools in the last years in Greece. You know, we had situations where they would call us and tell us that there's children who have to wear their big bulky jackets during class uh, in the public schools. It's not a pretty image and it happens. So that's where we, we, we came in and we said, okay, for the next uh, couple of years, we're going to dedicate our money to this. Uh, we also made a lot of ma- money for the tragedy at Mati to help the families there mm-hmm. um and we we i think in the last uh, you know whatever eight years we've raised it must have been more than three hundred thousand euros by now I, I could it could be more i might be wrong uh, but you know we've been doing an amazing job and um it's something that i i've been a small part of and and tried to help with and i i hope you can all kind of uh see yourselves in this role to give back wherever you can wherever you can um to volunteer a little bit I think, uh, um, I think that's amazing, Billy. Just, uh, again, uh, hats off. Uh, please, if you want to finish something, I wanted to, to uh, well, to add something about, uh, something that you made me realize just now. But please, go ahead. If you want to finish it, finish off your sentence. No, no, I'm, I'm, I think, you know, I'm, I'm done with the, the, the charity bit. Uh, the only thing I, I can say about what keeps me going through these difficulties um, you know, as an entrepreneur, you, you, it doesn't matter if you're an entrepreneur or you work 12 hour days because you have a really demanding job. You need to find some time to be with just yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a lot of this, uh, through, uh, running, which I have been doing since uh, I was 32. So for the last four years, by the way, I'm still 36, not 37 yet. <laughs> you made me a year older. Shame on you. Um, but you know, 32 than me, I'm also 36. I forgot that you were in the younger end. Yeah. Yeah. So since the, since the, since the time you were talking about in the very beginning that we were on the sports teams, uh, after I was about 18, I completely stopped doing any sport and essentially sat on the couch, played, uh, PlayStation or was on my laptop doing work, uh, and, and, and stopped any sort of physical fitness. Thankfully my, um, my, my physique is such that I'm very lucky that I, you know, don't get immensely, big uh, by sitting on the couch uh, i have gotten a bit of a beer belly i'm not going to show it to you now on camera um <laughs> but, but it's it's not great uh but at 30 
two, I decided I need to start doing some fitness mm. so I don't um, get a heart attack when I'm 40. So I started running. Initially, I hated it. In fact, before I started running, I used to call people who run psychopaths because I thought who in their right mind would get out and actually run and bring themselves the physical pain. Um, it's just something that I thought was disgusting and should not be done by anyone. Okay. So um, it's, it's, it's come to this point where, you know, I used it as a tool to be with myself and to be within my thoughts because when you're running, you can't use your phone. You can't, you know, you can listen to music, but ultimately there's no one there uh, invading your personal space no one you know people can call you but you, of course you don't pick up mm-hmm. and it's a, a moment there to be with yourself and by yourself and you come up with a lot of great ideas um you come up with a lot of, of solutions the problems you thought were un- unthinkable and unsolvable and it, it helped me a great deal i i was crazy enough to evolve that i've went on to to run three marathons in the last couple of years um and just say, just, and I'm just saying that not to to promote what I did because, you know, if you if you look at my times, I'm a very slow runner. Uh, it's a great achievement to, to, for you know. a 38 for a 38 year old. You know, you're doing great. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Colin. Um, but I'm, I just want to say, you know, you, you can you can achieve it. I literally didn't move the first time I went running. I ran for six minutes and collapsed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not joking. And then I ran my first marathon. Um, you know, in 2018 and, uh, I ran in Athens, which is one of the toughest marathons. It took me five hours, but I did it. And it just comes to show, you know, if you dedicate yourself to practicing, don't go out there and just run, try and run a marathon tomorrow. But if you build yourself up to, uh, work yourself up to any goal, if you put in the right training schedule, you can achieve it. So just a, a little plug for running. It helped me a lot. If you need some advice, um, I'm happy to help you do reach out to me, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever. Uh, and I'm happy to give you pointers, tips. I'm not a professional. I can also send you to the professionals if you want an actual professional to train you. Um, but I'm happy to share my experiences with, with what it took to actually get off the couch. No, I mean, uh, absolutely true. I mean, uh, and you kind of mentioned about this when you started talking about running, but uh, everyone needs an anchor. Everyone needs a bit of time by themselves. And the reality is, you know, uh, whatever you're trying to achieve in the world, uh, you can't just go in for, you know, headstrong, uh, head down to work. We saw probably our parents do this. I don't know about your dad, if he had his own exercise or not. But, you know, I saw my father work a lot basically and he eventually did decide to to go and and start working out and he went to the gym and then he unfortunately he was struck with uh, with rheumatoid arthritis which basically you know uh, killed that but I think it was also as the result of you know overworking himself and we you know we've we've come a long way as a society and we do realize that actually all work and not doing something for your body and not doing something to center your mind which is what running is for you it's that ability to switch off your mind for a while to be with your thoughts to make sense of things and not being in that infernal pace, which evidently and also, you know, right now, this whole coronavirus is allowing us to actually slow down a little bit. I don't know about you. You, you seem to sort of, you know, still maintain that pace because you're still communicating with the world. And probably right now, there's a lot of things going on for you to communicate. But for me, at least, you know, this whole corona thing has kind of been this opportunity to slow down a little bit. Well, my practice is kind of like a meditation and I do some some light, like kind of Tai Chi style movements, yoga, if you like, for my body. But uh, yeah. Billy, I mean... Um, um, it's just a just yeah, a, a quick uh, shout out because I, I see you you brought him up and he has a a, a risen and 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 joined us. So uh, you mentioned your father. My father doesn't do very much exercise. He walks a lot and as much as he can. Uh, not now with the coronavirus, of course, but um, that's his exercise. I think his marathon, uh, his equivalent, is just working nonstop every day. So, it drives mm-hmm. us all crazy. 
but it teaches us a lot and it makes things happen. And, you know, I don't know how you can have, he's, he's, he's 80 years old now. And I don't know how it's possible physically for him to work more than me at this point. Wow. That's amazing. Uh, He's, he's always worked more than me in terms of quantity, Mm -hmm. hours, time input. It's unbelievable. And you know, I I spent a lot of time talking about his past and what he did and how he came to to start the newspaper. Mm -hmm. Um, But the one thing I didn't say is, is how he's just a machine and goes nonstop. And I think he will do this uh, for forever, you know, for as long as he's breathing, he will be working uh, nonstop. It's what drives him. And actually, you know, some people are driven by their values, by their motivations. Uh, what he likes to do is have an impact on the world. Mm-hmm. Um, he likes to drive the conversation, be the conversation. Uh, and he, he is not afraid to take on the biggest ghosts. I've, you know, I've taken a lot of uh, big, big fights up in my journalism career. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I'm here, you know, he's gone here mm-hmm. uh, because he has kind of zero he you know what i think what millennials w- will say is he gives zero fucks about yeah, yeah. who it is he's taking on same with um, my father so, it must be a generation thing you know <laughs> yeah yeah sometimes sometimes we'll we'll have a discussion i'll say you know this might be a beast not worth fighting because the fallout of it will be significant mm-hmm. and I'll tell you, we, we've we've had impact uh, come out from good journalism that has had adverse uh, impact on our uh, on our income, on our you know on our clients and I things like that. That's the trade off in not, our profession. Yeah, it, it, it's the reality. I'm I'm not going to sugarcoat it. So um, I, I'm I'm just going to say you know, big up uh, Basil. Uh, he's there watching. Hey, Basil. Um, but you had a last question you wanted to ask, or you wanted to to, to ask me something. Well, actually, um, well, we're coming towards. Uh, the end of this uh, interview and I'll just recap for our audience members Basil if you're just joining I don't know if you're just joining or you were, or you were earlier but we know again just a quick recap but you know we covered Billy's humble beginnings being thrust into the journalistic world and being raised around it to you know eventually running the company and having to balance the management of it the management of his team and at the same time of course the editorial side of things We've talked about how he's been able to, or he strives to keep true at least to his values, while at the same time maintaining his, you know, journalistic objectivity and uh, and dedication to his profession. While at the same time, beyond basically journalism, and you know, we covered this a bit. And you know, if you're just tuning in, I want you to tune back, you know, to about 20 minutes ago, actually, because we talked about, uh, uh, you know, Billy's projects outside of his main publication, his main source of business, his nonprofit. Uh, projects, which one of them is Our World, which is a beautiful project that brings together thought leaders, not only in politics, but also, you know, uh, you know, uh, Hollywood, uh, Nobel Prize winners and a whole bunch of other thought leaders under the common banner, which is how do we improve our world? And there's a lot of beautiful segments that uh, that we talked about, about how you put something like, like that together, not necessarily having the biggest resources in the world, right? You know, Billy... Billy's company is an SME, you know, it's an important SME, but it's not like a huge New York Times with unlimited resources, but he still brings all these people together. And uh, the last couple of things we talked about and some really beautiful lessons that I'd like to thank you, actually, Billy, for reminding me and bringing it up to the surface. One is the beauty of uh, awareness, which comes with the mindset of entrepreneurialism. Like I'm saying, you don't have to be an entrepreneur. You can apply this in your company, in your craft, in your profession, but the ability just to Take in what's around you and find meaning about what's going on, how the system works that is currently providing, you know, the income for, uh, you know, your family and for yourself. 
And, uh, and um, uh, one of the last things I wanted to mention, Billy, which, uh, again, we're really, really beautiful. Thank you for reminding me, but it really is the, the beauty of charity or the beauty of giving, right? And, uh, and you beautifully put it, which is, you know, there is no action too little that can actually mean something, right? If you think that giving 50 cents to someone on the streets probably is not going to mean a lot and you're not going to go ahead with doing it, you know, I'd encourage you to go ahead and do it because 50 cents could mean the world to someone. But more importantly, what I wanted to highlight, what I took from actually what you said, which is I've been experiencing a lot lately, being part of various different organizations and also contributing, is the gift of your time and the gift of your resources and, and what comes out of that. And the, the, you know, the, the level of people and, 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 and uh, impact that you get to be involved in by, being, by volunteering into charitable causes, right? In my particular case, I'm part of uh, Urban Talks. And, uh, you know, I've been doing it for the last three years. It's an ongoing project. Every year I see it getting better and better. And uh, the the connections that I form, the new information I come across in, the community that's becoming formed right now, and, you know, we get to engage and impact and then go and create an impact in the world, has all been the result of me making the decision of, you know what, uh, I'm tired of just sitting around thinking about how the world could be better. I'm just going to go join something. I don't know what I'm doing in it, by the way. And, Billy, I don't know how, if you felt that way, I don't know what I'm doing. But just be involved and see how it shapes and you'll be amazed about, uh, you know, the, the accomplishment and sense of accomplishment that you'll have. So thank you, Billy, for those things. Now, we're coming to the last segment, right? And in the last segment, I always ask, you know, my guests, uh, you know, Billy, what's the one thing that you could share with our audience members, our audience members specifically being, you know, leaders of tomorrow, leaders of today, you know, espousing or people who espouse to be a, a leader of today to help shape our futures? What are the, you know, um, you know, one piece of action that you could recommend or, or your message that you'd like to give to our audience members? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about this before I came on. And um, I've, I've done a lot of teaching uh, to, uh, you know, I've done a, a few sessions with both teens and uh, young people who have just finished their bachelor's degree, for example, on entrepreneurship. And I think, you know, the first thing that we I try to do uh, when I'm lecturing them is I try to make them understand that it is possible for them to not be a civil servant or for them, you know, I say civil servant because in Greece, uh, when I was growing up, the dream of the families is for you to become a civil, civil servant, uh, or at least a lot of the families, not my family. Um, but once you get past the stumbling block of, um, I need to have the security and work for someone else, because the reality is you don't need to give up your job to start a project. Uh, you might at some point need to fully immerse yourself in that project and leave your job, but you don't necessarily need to full, uh, fully give up your job from the beginning. So once I get past that part, which is uh, the first and most important part, for, so for those people who are already feeling uh, entrepreneurial, if you will, um, or have an idea, but they don't think that their resources are there or they don't have enough, uh, I say the following. Look, if, if you probably might have a job um, that you would leave if this kicked off, um, you're not struggling. If you're struggling, this, this is a different conversation. So you don't have as much time if you're struggling. Um, but work on your vision, work on your dream. Uh, make sure most critically, you know how to communicate it well, mm -hmm. because as I said before, the mistake most people make when they try to sell their own, uh, idea is they sell their personal passion for the project rather than the project itself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it's very easy to do because I, I will tell you, I love this project, 
Um, it's an amazing project and I love doing it because I feel I give back. That's not what I should be selling here. I should be selling the impact that this project has, the impact that it will have for the people contributing, the impact it will have to the world, and the impact it will have to the advertisers that choose to get involved. And by the way, we have some, some great advertisers here. Um, so we managed to sell uh, some of it. Um, so get back past beyond selling your personal passion, sell the project itself. And once you're confident that you know how to communicate it and that you're not selling the passion and you're selling the project, uh, spend all of your time building relationships. Mm -hmm. If you have a project of value, other people will believe it in too, and they will invest in you. And remember that a lot of the time people aren't necessarily putting their own money into the project. They could be managing a company or an individual's budget or their section's budget, their unit's budget within an organization. So the critical issue is to make them believe in your project, not in you, but in your project. Um, too often we try and make people believe in us so that they can believe in our project. People will often believe in you because they believe in the, in the project uh, and not the other way around. Uh, so that's my, uh, that's my advice. Invest in your relationships uh, because the people who you invest in relationships with, they will come back and back and back and they will want to build things with you once they believe in you uh, and well, in the projects that you're making. Um, that's my takeaway. Um, you mentioned the, the coronavirus and what I've been doing here. Uh, you know, it's uh, we're mid pandemic where somehow I find myself working 14 hour days, 16 hour days because <laughs> there's nothing else to do. And you kind of feel bad to just sit on the couch and do nothing. Um, I do uh, some reading. Um, I don't just, of course, work. Uh, I do watch some shows on the various streaming um, channels. Don't tell um, your dad's watching huh? That's okay. That's okay. Um, but you know, I, uh, I try to keep myself busy. Some of it uh, comes by force. Um, if I want to recommend the one thing that I've, uh, read in the last couple of weeks, uh, I will re recommend a book by Chris Voss, um, mm. called never split the difference, yeah, yeah. um, which, which I have right here. Um, this is a book about negotiating, uh, never split the difference. I don't get paid for that advertisement, by the way. It's just, I found it to be such a great book because it doesn't teach you about negotiation. It teaches you about the basics and the premise behind human interaction and what it is you can do. Uh, I don't want to say to manipulate it, but to maximize your gain from an interaction by by using by shaping the mechanics of that interaction. I'm I'm using these words on purpose because I don't want to give the book uh, away. I don't want to give away the, 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 the meaning. Book, and you're missing a keyword there, but I know why you're doing it now, so I won't say that keyword. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I uh, so so I say I will say read the book, uh, especially if you plan on negotiating for something, um, or just want to become more productive in your daily interactions. Um, that's that's all for me, Colin. Uh, I want to thank you very much for for having me on. It's uh, it's been good to uh, have a candid conversation and be able to kind of tell some people about what I've been doing, uh, some of more, my more esoteric thoughts about how this business is, and it's a <laughs> it's a very difficult business to be in. Um, so thank you for that opportunity. Uh, I want to thank you, Billy, and uh, you know just again um, key points. For any of you just joining in, or at least my key points. By the way, Billy, I do this mainly for me because I get to meet first of all and uh, you know amazing people, 
and inspiring people. And every single interview I do, I always take a little part, like what you said, you know, when you're interviewing someone, especially someone who's, you know, uh, uh, by most uh, average measures, someone who's achieved a lot of things, like a billionaire or whatever you, you know, you said as a, as an anecdotal example. But I love also to hear the, the closer examples because what I found, at least in my journey, was even though, and, and this is really important, this is why I do this show and I'd love to share this with people, but even though, of course, we're inspired by people like Elon Musk, sometimes that gap can seem so, you know, uh, frightening. And I found that, at least in my case, when I started listening to people who were just a couple of steps ahead in certain areas that I was interested in, that made that gap all the much smaller and made me want to take those steps. And what, I, what I've learned from today, Billy, and I'm really glad we did this, by the way, because we've been talking about this for a while. What I learned today is actually, you know, um, what you said around community and, and how the importance of building your relationships. I'm starting to see those returns now. And I've always been someone, like I said, I've always been a lone wolf, like for whatever reason, even though it's, it's part of my nature. I'm kind of really outgoing and really, really caring. But I don't know why I do it. I guess it's, you know, this... Um, you know, false beliefs I picked up around what I think an entrepreneur means or what I think a man means necessarily, right? So the older I get, the kind of more vulnerable I get, the more I realize that this is what it's about, guys. And this isn't hard to do, actually, right? It's go invite a friend like Billy out for a nice, candid conversation, and you'll be amazed about what things come about it. And secondly, well, like you rightly said, this is something I teach my students and, and my clients, you know, because it's my job, actually. I'm in marketing and, and, and sales and advertising, and what I do is help people position you know, their, uh, their cause, i.e. their business or their beliefs in a way that actually sells. And the key to that actually, like you rightly said, is it's not about you actually, it's about what's in it for the others. How can you change the lives of the others or how can this project, this vehicle, whatever you believe in can actually help others. And that's a question you really have to pose yourself. And I think you do very, very well there, Billy, because you know, I can tell by how you talk, which is, you know, what, what's the opportunity cost of something like this not existing out there? And, and, you know, how can this actually not help people by not existing in the first place, right? What are these people going to go through if they don't have a vehicle like this to express themselves, to be a part of and all those kind of things? So and, I just wanted to thank you for that, man. Yeah, if I, if I can tack on to that, um, because you mentioned Elon Musk and you mentioned the, the, the opportunity cost of things, ideas not existing. Um, you know, people often think that businesses are only successful if they're billion dollar businesses. Yeah. This is the way we've been conditioned to think in the last 10 years. Yeah. If you have an idea that you think can break even, make that business happen. Make that business and you know what, if it's just break even and it's not enough inspiring for you to stay in, in the long term, make that and let it run itself and keep that going. And you know what, you'll find a way to scale that up and make it so that it becomes more profitable. But it doesn't have to be a billion dollar business, even if it's giving you a small income or a medium income, and it's a three person company, make it happen. That could just be the first step to something much, much bigger. I, uh, I totally agree with you. And it's a very, very wise observation that I keep realizing. And I guess, you know, that gap that we talk about, that divide is created in your own mind, right? If you are looking for that billion dollar thing, it's gonna bring a hell of a lot more pressure. It's probably gonna make you uh, or cause inaction in the first place in some cases or overaction, right? You know, striving too hard yep. and you're kind of missing what's really, really in front of you and what the magic and the beauty about what it is uh, that's in front of you. And that's what I learn as I get older, which, you know, it's about the simple things like community, like giving and all the things that you very, very beautifully put together in this uh, talk today, Billy. And again, big, big thank you. I wanted to say it's been a real, real honor. I, again, uh, you know, I, I want to, first of all, 
extend my admiration for the projects you've been doing aside from your business and at the same time of course as a fellow entrepreneur and I can relate to a lot of things that you talked about you know managing to steer the ship you know up until this particular point and many many uh, you know uh, successes uh, going forward I wish you guys and, and, and your team and great also to meet your father <laughs> so great great thank you very much Alan. So uh, thank that, you very much and, yeah, and all the success to also the future podcasts. I know you've had some great people that have watched some of them before and I'm, I'm very, very happy to, to and honored to be a, a guest here and uh, I look forward to the next ones as well. And uh, Billy, uh, uh, you know, as we talked about, but uh, uh, I would love to look forward to some potential collaborations around some of the stuff we do in, in my kind of nonprofit areas. And maybe we can, you know, contribute to your nonprofit areas because I see a lot of, let's say, alignment in our vision in that sense. And I'd love to work yeah, with someone like you, obviously. For, for all of the people, you know, who are watching us, uh, if you want to reach out to, to me or Colin and, and uh, do something together, um, whether it's business or it's not for profit, if you have an idea uh, that we could also get behind and become passionate about and join and do something together. It could be mutually beneficial or, or, or not. Uh, please reach out. You know, um, I'm on Twitter, a car a K O R O N A K I S. You could just see it on my name. Um, also on Facebook, uh, the same LinkedIn, very easy to find. So just reach out, you know, the, the internet is making things very, very easy for us. Yeah, absolutely. The first step is reach out and Hey, I would also recommend whoever's re whoever's watching right now. First step is, Give a thumbs up in this uh, in this little chat if you enjoyed this interview. Make sure you share it, even if you're watching later and it's not live. I still love to hear from you. You know, this is why I'm doing this for you guys. And, and you know, I really missed you in the last couple of weeks. Again, Billy, such an honor. Thank you very, very, very much. And I'm looking very much forward to seeing, you know, what you'll be doing next. And also, uh, um, you know, uh, what you keep doing and how you keep bringing about your, you know, your impact in the world. And guys, for anyone, stay tuned. Yeah, please. Yeah, yeah. And, and guys, I know, I'm just saying stay, stay tuned. Yeah, stay tuned. We will stay tuned, Billy. And please don't ever hesitate to let me know what you're up to so I can also announce to my readers because, you know, what happens is a lot of my viewers end up, you know, kind of like following about my guests and asking what's going on with them and, and where are they up to. So definitely let me know what's happening and we'll definitely be staying in touch. And guys, again, this comes uh, or this brings to a conclusion another episode of Architects of the Future. And uh, let me say that there has never been a more important time in history then right now for you to actually step up and take action, the the uh, the environment is absolutely right. Meaning, you know, when there's chaos, there's a need for leadership, there's a need for change, and there is an urgency where people might not have been listening to solutions, ideas, ideals, beliefs. Right now, for example, everyone's locked at home, and there's never been more unity despite the fact that we can't be together physically. And uh, whereas before, maybe the focus, and it can still be, and Billy, probably you know this because you're, you're, you're in that world where, where you get to hear a lot about this, but where before the focus must, might have been on you know, nationalistic interests, us versus you, right now, all that's gone, right? You know, it's no longer about nation, religion, and social status. It's just you know, one human uh, race. And how do we come this to get? How do we basically uh, come combat this together? And I just want to say a big shout out to everyone in the front line, to everyone right now who's you know fighting in hospitals, in care homes, in in shops. Journalists also putting their their you know putting themselves out there so they can report the truth. I want to say a big thank you, and uh, and we're very very appreciative that you've decided to take that risk to keep us all safe. Yeah. Let me let me echo that, Colin, because you know we didn't spend. I think a little bit on purpose. We didn't discuss the coronavirus 
at all today and uh, we should we should you know we should just give a big thank you to the people on the front lines uh the the doctors the nurses the people who are in, in the stores risking their lives to be able to keep selling us pasta so we don't die of hunger um you know the the journalists the everyone you know the teachers who are teleworking and teleteaching their kids everyone who's just doing anything at this point to contribute to our safety the policemen uh, the ambulance drivers everyone uh deserves the gratitude we go out every day at eight o'clock and clap um and and i just open the window and i start clapping the whole neighborhood is clapping yeah, it's, it's it's a thing that brings us all together and it's very beautiful wouldn't it be amazing if literally that was every day if we didn't really need a cause to just get up and clap and be thankful for each other and the role that we play in each other's lives it's an ideal but why the hell not right billy <laughs> you're absolutely right and uh and, and by the way i do want to mention also uh because i was uh, I had my opinion slightly, you know, uh, or my awareness expanded a little bit that, you know, uh, also thank you to all the artists, all the actors, all the musicians, uh, you know, everyone basically that has created all the entertainment, all the knowledge that we're currently absorbing and have more time for. Thank you to you guys too, right? You're your beautiful expression of the human race and that's something to be appreciated. And by the way, you know, I really do think right now actually is probably the biggest time and, and, and the biggest need actually for art and art which represents the kind of values that we could strive to and that we could believe in and that could reflect the kind of world we want to be a part of. So thank you for you guys too. And Billy again, big, big thank you, brother. Really, really great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me.